You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Common Descent Podcast, episode 148. As you know, this podcast, we talk about paleontology, life history, evolution, all sorts of cool stuff about the history and diversity of life on Earth. This episode's topic is gliding. Yeah. We have talked about flight on this podcast a bunch. Yes. We had a whole episode about the evolution of flight, episode six. We have done episodes on every group of flying animals that there is. This episode, we are talking about flight's next door neighbor, gliding. Falling with style. Falling with style in a whole bunch of different wacky cool ways. Gliding is extremely widespread among the organisms of Earth. There are all sorts of different things that do it in all sorts of different cool ways. No, it, it gets real weird. <laughs> it is a re- it is a fascinating convergent feature that has evolved many, many, many times. This episode, we're going to talk about what gliding technically is, how it's different from flight, what's good about it, a bit of what we understand about evolutionary patterns in gliding, but mostly we're going to geek out over the diversity of gliders in the modern day, and also what we know about gliding in the history of life on Earth. I'm, I'm so excited because gliders get so like eccentric and, and bizarre with the ways they decide to catch the air. We're going to have a lot of fun. This episode topic comes to you thanks to requests from Johan, Jonathan, Simon, Yayoi, and Milu. Nice suggestion. Thank you, everybody. We will get to the main topic in just a little bit. But first, some announcements. Announcement number one, we have a Patreon. We do. The support that we get on Patreon helps to fund all the things the podcast does. If you'd like to support our science communication efforts and help us to make more content for all of our listeners, you can join us on our Patreon. The link is in the episode description. You get all sorts of goodies. Bonus content, bonus access to us, your humble hosts, and also at certain levels you get a shout-out right here at the top of the episode. For example, this episode we would like to welcome new patrons Dana, Sable, Yanis, Angus, and Opens Up For Nobody. (laughs) Welcome, everyone. Thanks so much for the support. Thank you for your support. We truly appreciate it. Don't forget to take advantage of all the cool bonus stuff, the bonus content, the live streams, things like that. If you're looking for other ways to interact with us, we've got social media, we've got Discord, we've got a store on Zazzle, links all in the episode description, and hey, sometimes we get to interact with people in person. Yes! At the beginning of September, we went to DragonCon! Yes, we did! We had a wonderful time, we did a handful of really cool panels with some really cool people, we got to meet a bunch of our listeners who came to see us! It was really cool! We gained, during one of our panels, I think we gained three or four new patrons during the panel. Which is mind-blowing. That's so awesome. So cool. Thank you so much. Welcome. So cool. Uh, extra shout out to Rebecca and Bo, who are longtime listeners, longtime Dragon Con friends of ours that we got to hang out with and chit-chat with a bunch at this year's Dragon Con. Yeah. Super great to see everybody. Great to participate. We will be back next year. Yeah. Very happy nerds after getting to go to Dragon Con. But that is in the past. 
<laughs> Let us look to the future. It is September, which means next month is October. Oh, time to get spooky, time I think. Time to get spooky. Every year, we do a special side series in October called Spooculative Evolution, where we engage in some fun speculative evolution projects, trying to wrap our minds around how might evolution as we know it in the real world produce monsters from our favorite cultural sources. Yeah. In the past, we've looked at monsters from movies, monsters from mythology, monsters from all sorts of different places. Spooky 2022, our theme is Monsters of Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> we are very excited. We are huge nerds. A lot of our listeners are huge nerds. Dungeons and Dragons has never been more popular, so this doesn't seem like a niche topic like it might have 10 years ago. Oh, yeah. Like, this is, this is going to be... A ton of fun. It's going to be awesome. So, in October, four episodes, four monsters, four Saturdays. Uh, we will be skipping the first Saturday. The last four Saturdays in October, each one will have an episode of Spooky. Stay tuned. We're going to have so much fun. <laughs> and one last thing before we wrap up the announcements. We want to throw a little bit of support to someone that we worked with at DragonCon this year. Yes. One of the moderators for our panel was Mouse Hecht, who is an elementary special education teacher looking for support via donations to help the kids in their classroom. Mouse has a Donors Choose page, which we will link in the episode description. Like I said, Mouse teaches elementary special education in a school in Maryland, low-income school. Lots of their students are English language learners, and donations on that Donors Choose account help them to acquire tools, learning supplies, headphones, more comfortable chairs, hands-on science activities, all sorts of stuff to help those kids learn the best that they can. Mouse was awesome to work at. We did our speculative evolution panel with Mouse yes. this year at DragonCon. We had a bunch of fun. People in the audience had a bunch of fun. So while we're encouraging you to support our science and education efforts, we would also like to encourage you to support other people's science and education efforts. Mouse's Donors Choose link is in the episode description if you have some money to throw their way. Please go ahead and do so. Yeah, Mouse was super cool on the panel. They're a very cool person, and they're doing some really, really important work. Yeah. Also, they burned just all the energy in the world during the Science V Movies panel running across that giant ballroom to bring the microphone to people. Oh, yeah. They deserve some support. <laughs> <laughs> That's dedication. <laughs> so shout out to Mouse. Shout out to our friends at DragonCon. Shout out to our listeners. Shout out to our patrons. That's enough announcements for today. <laughs> we have a main episode topic to get to, but of course, before we do that, we have the news. News! Every episode, we pick some news from the world of paleontology, evolutionary science, the kind of topics that interest us and you to keep us all up to date together. Will, please, news. My first news is coming on the tail end of our last episode, genetics, and is some a new finding that corals may be able to pass down mutations in a way we haven't seen in other animals. Oh. This research is by Kate Kuntz et al. in Science Advances, and the article is a press release by Penn State in Science Daily. Hey, that article will be linked in the blog post that comes after this episode. Link in the episode description. It most surely will be. Now, in the genetics episode, we talked about the fact that mutations are one of the main ways that diversity and variation gets introduced to an organism's DNA 
and then that can be passed on to a new generation and result in new features or slightly differing features and and adaptations. Yeah, mutations provide a bunch of the variability that is essential for evolution to happen. Yes. Now, we mentioned that these mutations have to be passed on to the young, which means they need to be in the reproductive cells, the cells that are going to be used, if you're mating, used to make a fertilized egg. Yeah. If you get a mutation in the cells of your shoulder, that's not going to affect the offspring. Yes, those cells of the rest of our body are called somatic cells, and then we have the germ cells, which are the ones that actually are used during reproduction. Somatic mutations, mutations in the rest of the body, don't contribute to evolution, and has been the classic thought for over a century of genetic knowledge. Oh man, I love when we <laughs> overturn a part of our last episode in the next episode. Yep. Corals evidently may be able to break this rule. Ooh. One of the big reasons that somatic mutations don't make it into the next generation is because in most organisms, most animals specifically, reproductive cells and somatic cells are separated in the body. Like, we're not just making uh, germ cells out of random cells in the body. Those are a separate part of the organism where that's happening. So even if a mutation happens in a part of the body near your reproductive parts... That's, that's not going to make it into the germ cells. There is a barrier, effectively, mm -hmm. between these two groups of cells in animals. But corals, many will still segregate those cells, but they do it sometimes very late in their development. Like, that doesn't happen as early as it does with other animals. So they the germ and somatic cells are in contact or mixed or similar. They're not yet differentiated and segregated and separated. And some don't seem to ever separate them. Hmm. They don't seem to ever distinguish the two clearly, which means there's the potential that just a body cell mutation could be passed on or have still the potential to make reproductive cells. And this is important because corals can reproduce asexually. They can just bud. Right. And like a bacteria, if you bud, well, then any mutations are going to be passed on as you split your body. Mm -hmm. But they can also reproduce sexually with sperm and egg, pumping it into the water usually. But for some corals, elkhorn corals were the main species of this study, uh, which are very common research coral. They will broadcast spawn with neighboring colonies, but some can develop fertilized eggs, so sexual reproduction, but within the same colony. So as they put it, a uniparental sexual reproduction instead of a biparental just one parent fertilizes their own eggs like a plant yes <laughs> which makes it interesting for this research because they wanted to look are mutations getting passed from body cells to the young of these various coral colonies and the uniparental reproduction gave them a really great way to make sure that no other genetic variation it was limiting the amount of genetic variation they were going to be observing. Yes. Which gives them a very clean way to pay, to look and track how many mutations are getting passed on. Convenient. So they looked at both uni and biparental reproduction. Uh, they looked at a number of coral colonies, 10 different locations on a one large colony, and then samples from five neighboring colonies that produced fertilized young and glanced at 
just a mere 20,000 genetic locations. Or just a few. On a handful. the genomes, the genotypes of these corals. They found that all six, so the five neighboring and the one big colony, belonged to the same original coral genotype. So they were effectively cloned from the same original colony at some point. Likely through fragmentation, where a coral would get split, you know, broken or something. Right physically divides it and it just goes well i guess i'm growing over here now like a plant yes like a plant which means that very likely any variation we see between these colonies is going to be from somatic mutations it's going to be mutations that have happened during the lives of these corals not due to intermixing with other unrelated colonies they found a total of 268 somatic mutations in the samples and the Differing colonies harbored between 2 and 149 somatic mutations sharing with those that 268 list. And especially among the uniparental offspring, they found that nearly 50% of the somatic mutations from the parent colony were passed on. Which gives evidence that these corals are able to have mutations happen to them in their body and then pass that on to... So, Mutations during their life, mm -hmm. not just at the point of reproduction, which very likely could happen, have a major effect on their rate of evolution and ability to respond to changes. And they said it could potentially act as a pre-screening system for advantageous mutations, because since it's a colonial organism and since they, the coral grows by budding, by reproducing polyps, by just splitting... If a polyp experiences a mutation that's negative, that polyp will die, but not really hurt the colony. But if it experiences a positive mutation that helps it, then that polyp will continue to spread and multiply and spread that mutation. And that advantageous mutation developed during its life and then spread has a good chance, a 50-50 chance, it seems, to be passed on to the next generation. Mm -hmm. So it may act as a way to kind of do a... a that's what I'm looking for. Do a trial run on mutations before reproduction happens. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like it would mean that just the pool of mutations available to produce genetic diversity in the next generation is expanded quite a lot. Exactly. It's like now you have more mutations to potentially work with, but in a way such that negative mutations aren't going to be a huge problem all the time, but allows for higher chances of positive mutations eventually getting passed on. Yes, and they said this could end up being a major, uh, uh, that this bit of information could be critical in understanding how corals might be responding and respond to the quick changing climate of today's uh, human driven climate change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More genetic variation <clears throat> could absolutely have an impact on how quickly they might evolve or how selective pressures might act upon them. Also, it's just always fun to learn about an organism that is doing genetics wrong. Yep. That the way that organisms aren't supposed to do it. Yeah. That this, this is the only animal that seems to be able to do this, at least according to our current knowledge. Mm-hmm. Which is bizarre. And of course it'd be corals. Oh, yeah. They're trying their hardest to be plants. Yes. And they're doing a good <laughs> job. They sure are. Well, speaking of news, I've mm -hmm. got my first one is about a new dinosaur. Uh, but not only a new dinosaur, a new 
ecosystem in which this dinosaur lived that is important for our understanding of how things were moving around in the early days of the dinosaurs. Nifty. This is research in the journal Nature by Christopher Griffin et al. And we will link to an article in National Geographic by Michael Greshko. The new dinosaur in question has been named Mbirisaurus rothi, which is a sauropodomorph. So these are the early ancestors and cousins of sauropods, the long-necked, long-tailed dinosaurs. Early sauropodomorphs, as we've discussed before, were generally very small, two-legged, well, bipedal walking on two legs, but would eventually give rise to the giants among the dinosaurs. Mbirisaurus lived in the late Triassic around 230 million years ago, and it was found in the Pebbly Arcos Formation of Zimbabwe in Africa. Like a lot of early dinosaurs, Mbirisaurus is less than two feet tall at the hip, so like half a meter tall. Bipedal, small head, leaf-shaped teeth, pretty classic. A lot of early dinosaurs have this very similar body shape. This is very much, this is very likely what the ancestor to dinosaurs looked like. Yes, this is how dinosaurs all started out. Yep, (laughs) which is insane to think. A lot of early dinosaurs are also not known very well from very well-preserved fossil specimens. This is an exception. Mbirisaurus is known from one nearly complete skeleton, as well as a second one that is a partial skeleton. All together, putting those two specimens together, the researchers were able to get a good sense of basically the entire skeleton. Nice. Like, I think they said there were a couple of vertebrae and maybe some hand bones that weren't accounted for in these two specimens, but we have a great idea of what this whole skeleton looked like. I I love that feature of putting together the whole picture from multiple individuals. Yeah. This is, of course, exciting because early dinosaurs are useful for understanding early dinosaur evolution. A sauropod ancestor is useful for understanding sauropod evolution. It is also one of those fun superlatives. This is Africa's oldest definitive named dinosaur. Wow. Now, there are hints of other dinosaurs at this site, but none of them received a name in this study. None of them were complete enough to be identified to a species. So as of now, this is the oldest known dinosaur with a name and with a description from the continent of Africa, which is very cool. Nice. But while a new dinosaur species is exciting and all, the implications, the sort of broader reaching conclusions of this study have to do with the ecosystem the dinosaur was found in. The Pebliarcos formation represents an ancient braided river system, and alongside Mbirisaurus, there are the remains of Rhynchosaurs, Edosaurs, those are the crocodilla cousins, Cynodonts, a Herrerasaurid, so a different early, bigger early dinosaur. And this whole ecosystem assemblage, the authors noted, is very similar to fossil sites of the late Triassic in Argentina and Brazil. Oh. Now, the fact that the African site is very similar in its ecosystem to South American sites is not surprising, because during the late Triassic, those continents were together. We had Pangaea. Most of the Earth's land masses were in one conglomerated continent. Yeah, back then they weren't two things. So animals and plants and such were much more capable of moving to different parts of the continent. But there has long been a hypothesis that even though this was one continent, there were still barriers in the way of dispersal. Namely, climate barriers. So we don't have evidence that there was necessarily big mountain ranges stopping things from moving around. There wasn't an ocean in the way because it was one continent. 
But at the time of Pangaea, the higher latitudes, so farther to the north and south, had these lush, wonderful environments, but the tropics were dry and arid with a lot of desert. And deserts are just as much a barrier to the motion of organisms as mountains and oceans are. Yep. So paleontologists have suggested that this tropical band of Pangaea might have formed a climatic barrier. This find supports the idea that dinosaurs and other early animals of the time were able to move around the southern portion of Pangaea, the parts that today are South America and Africa, but not to go further north. Uh, that the, the equator created a barrier. Yes, we don't see similar ecosystems to this in the north. And it wasn't until the late Triassic that a shift towards more humidity, the deserts shrink, then we see early dinosaurs and their ecological neighbors appearing in more northern realms. So previously, a lot of this interpretation has been based on South America. Now we've got an ecosystem from a whole different part of Pangaea that seems to support that same picture. Early dinosaurs couldn't break out of the south until the climate shifted. That's very cool. And it's it's a ton of fun just picturing that, that like, if you were if you were in a, a desert caravan, if you time traveled back with a few camels <laughs> and crossed the Pangean Desert from north to south, you would come across a vast land of utterly strange and not yet seen creatures mm-hmm. from what you left in the north. Yeah. Which is a really cool concept. It's also finding those similar environments on continents from those ancient times is just a a really beautiful example of one of the ways we piece together things like Pangaea. Mm -hmm. Is going, well, this sure does look like that. And yeah, that makes sense because they used to be touching. Yeah. This is a particularly interesting find because it has that feature, but they are also separated enough that we have a species of dinosaur in this Zimbabwe site that we haven't seen before. Yeah. And the authors make the point that in this study, they identify this dinosaur but a lot of the other stuff that was found at this fossil site probably also includes a bunch of new species. Yep. Because it's a very, it's a vastly different part of ancient Pangaea. Well, it's it's kind of like here in North America where it's like, you know, we, ha- we do have mountain ranges. Like we have the Rockies that do separate two sections of our, our landmass. But that like the animals living in the Midwest where there really are not a ton of huge barriers are different than what are over here on the east coast because mm-hmm. that's a long way away <laughs> like that's a, that's a long way to ask every animal to travel to keep an entire population. yeah you're going to get different things just because of distance yeah so future studies on this fossil locality will probably yield more newsworthy finds that's exciting well you mentioned etosaurs uh which are croc cousins so i'm gonna talk about a croc for my next news croc a what this is a teeny tiny croc. So uh, just neat. a little croc. <laughs> uh, this is an Australian specimen that has been examined with CT scanning to look at its brain case and then compare it to other extinct and modern crocs and looking for similarities and features. Ooh, croc brain evolution, right? This research is by Yorgo Riztevsky in the Journal of Anatomy and the article is by Evrim Yazgin. In Cosmos magazine. This croc is an Australian Mekasukian. These were 
an extinct an now extinct group of crocs. This species is from the Miocene, it's 13 and a half million years old. This species is Trilophosuchus rachemi, meaning Rackham's three-crested crocodile. It is a tiny one, like adult size is estimated to be 70 to 90 centimeters. So that is a, that's a little croc. Yeah, we're talking a croc that at max is a meter, <laughs> basically. And that's itty bitty, probably weighed one to two kilograms. Aw. Little short snout and three distinctive ridges on the top of the skull. Oh, cool. Thus its name. Yeah, yeah. This study wanted to look at the neuroanatomy, the brain structure, the brain case, so that skull cavity, scanning it and getting an idea for the shape of the brain that was held within. They used CT scans of the holotype specimen for the species. Right. The reference specimen. Mm-hmm. Which is a really well-preserved skull, or at least includes a very well-preserved skull. Uh, so well-preserved that they said they could digitally reconstruct it and then separate out each individual bone. Oh, wow. Like, they could dissect the skull in 3D in the computer because of how nice it was. So they got a really, really good look. And this allowed them to make some comparisons and find some interesting, uh, unique features of this brain case. So there are some distinct things for this species, uh, which is just always useful when we can find something that seems to be unique to a species. Helpful for identification, for sure. Exactly. So we now have a better understanding of this croc. Uh, they were able to find that it, it still is a croc brain, like it's shaped like croc brains. With our modern crocs, it was seemed to be most similar with uh, Osteolamus, which is the dwarf crocodile, and Paleosuchus, which is one of the dwarf caimans. And from fossil crocs, it showed many similarities with two African and South American groups, Ariposuchus and Sebicus, which are both Notosuchians, which is interesting because that group is a well-known terrestrial croc group. Right, living on land. Living on land. They have longer limbs and typically more stout skulls for moving around and feeding on land, which Trilophosuchus also has features that indicated it was likely terrestrial. And it is sharing brain features, it seems. It has a similar-shaped brain case. Yeah. It sounds like they're noting similarities between other potentially land-loving crocs and other tiny crocs. Yes. Yeah. That there seems to be convergent evolution with distantly related, but maybe potentially similar lifestyle. And today our smaller, like the dwarf crocodile is a very land loving croc. It's mm-hmm. not nearly terrestrial like the Notosuchians, but is notable, which is reinforcement to the anatomy that, that this, that seems like good evidence that this was a terrestrial croc and could be an interesting way to look for that feature in other crocs. We've talked about this before, I'm sure. We did a whole episode about brains, episode 121, and we've talked in the past about how brain case shape can sometimes correlate with lifestyle and Mm -hmm. locomotion and where you're living in your habitat, which makes total sense, right? The brain needs of an animal are going to be different if they're climbing in trees or flying or swimming or whatever it is that they're doing. It's just such a fun and weird thing to think about that you can find the brain case of a fossil animal and make reasonable conclusions about what it was doing in its habitat. Yeah. And it's it seems like a simplistic way to describe the brain, but your different parts of your brain do different jobs. And if that part doing that job is bigger, it's going to be able to do that job better. Oh, yeah. I, I especially like the fact that we often won't even know why the shape of the brain correlates to certain <laughs> habitats. And like, we can make an inference and say, oh, well, it looks like 
you know, the sense of smell was bigger and that kind of matches with the kind of diet it has or whatever. But sometimes we see these patterns in brain cases and we go, all right, this shape of brain case correlates with this kind of lifestyle. We don't actually know why it does, but it's reliable so we can use that to help us identify the behavior of an ancient species. We're not sure why those parts of the brain are being emphasized the way they are, but it's consistent. Yeah. So it's useful. Which is a very fun, it's always, it's always fun to be reminded, especially as a paleontologist, that it isn't just the hard outside parts that change with evolution, that all the inside stuff is also changing and adapting and evolving over time. Yeah, well, it's, if you're using a different vehicle, you're going to need a different operating system. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, at some point in that description of that news, you used the word dissect. So I did. that's going to be my segue into my bit of news. You're welcome. Uh, we're going to take a little trip into uh, anthropology archaeology, ancient human studies. We're going to get real recent with it. This is news about what appears to be the oldest potential example of an intentional, what we would call, surgery. Oh, that's awesome. And sounds horrifying. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The super cool find implications. Not great. (laughs) This is research by Tim Ryan Maloney et al. in the journal Nature, because with a title like that, of course it's in Nature. And we will link to an article in Smithsonian Magazine by Brian Handwork. So one of the things that we humans can do is complex medical care of each other. Now, according to the what the authors wrote in the paper, the general view is that around ten to 12,000 years ago, when humans shifted from a more foraging, wandering lifestyle to a more agricultural, sedentary, staying-in-one-place society, this transition gave rise to all new health concerns and all new opportunities for taking care of each other and stimulated more modern medical practices. And indeed, there have been finds in the ancient record of apparent surgeries. The oldest known complex surgery before this was evidenced by skeletal remains of a farmer found in France from about 7,000 years ago who seems to have had his left forearm surgically removed. Wow. An amputation. This study finds an older one, a significantly older one. These are skeletal remains from Borneo dating to at least 31,000 years ago. (laughs) The skeletal remains in question are a human skeleton that belonged to an individual who was probably 19 to 20 years old when they died, whose left leg was missing the bottom of it. They said about, I think they said about a third of the lower leg, so the end of the tibia fibula and the foot were gone. And based on the patterns they saw on the bone, they interpreted this as a deliberate amputation. Mm -hmm. They said there were no signs of traumatic injury, like if you got your leg bitten off by a crocodile or something. That tends to leave certain telltale signs of, like, crushing and... Splintering. (laughs) Yeah, other malformations. This seems to be a relatively clean cut, and they pointed out that there are these bony growths on the bone that are signs of rehealing and remodeling that are similar growths that we see in modern day amputees. Oh, when modern day, when a, when a bone is surgically cut, intentionally cut and cared for, we see certain patterns of regrowth. This looks similar to that. 
So evidence seems to indicate that this was an on-purpose severing of the end of this leg. They also point out that there are no signs of major infection or major complications following this, and evidence from the skeleton suggests that this individual survived another six to nine years. Oh, wow. They found this isn't like this skeleton was buried under the sediment because it died with the leg injury. This was found in an intentional burial. So this individual had lost the end of their leg, lived for another almost a decade, potentially, and then was buried by their peers later on. Uh, in fact, a little side note, they've, they pointed out that this is possibly the oldest burial of a human in this region. Whoa! Which is pretty cool. Now, finding evidence of an intentional amputation is exciting, not only because of the sentence that I just said, that that's a very cool thing to find, but it implies certain things about the people that lived at that time. The authors point out that in order to do a clean, healthy, relatively safe amputation, whoever did it must would have had to navigate around blood vessels and nerves and muscles to avoid fatal blood loss or infection mm -hmm. to make a clean cut that is able to heal and allow a person to continue living for several years. They also point out that this individual probably also would have had to have received a lot of care mm -hmm. from their community, helping take care of them, cleaning the wound, helping them prevent infection, things like that. Uh, now, this is always, I'm personally always a little bit skeptical. Uh, and I think this can, I think Laura mentioned this when we had Laura on in episode 84, of the inference of this individual had a, a severe injury and didn't die from it. Therefore, they must have been taken care of by the people around them. Yes. I'm always a little bit skeptical, only because we see animals in the wild survive for long periods of time with just horrific injuries yeah. all the time. Just truly gruesome states of being. So I don't doubt that ancient humans could have persisted even if they weren't being taken care of by their community and having their injuries tended to and stuff like that. Well, and it, it's like, th there's been lots of humans. And so the, the, the chances that an injured human surviving successfully because of help from friends is absolutely very logical. It makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Almost certainly was happening, but also surely someone fractured their femur at some point, but happened to be in a place where, there was water and food close enough nearby that you could scooch around to it yeah, and survive for a surprisingly long time yeah. until it healed. We see that in nature all the time. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, in this case, they point out that the cut seems to have been intentional. There don't seem to have been major complications. And they were later buried, yes. like intentionally buried. So it does seem very likely that... Even if this was a hardy individual who could have survived without a foot, that they had a community. That's what I was about to say. That there were people keeping track of this person. Absolutely. Regardless of what for sure happened, they were not alone. Yes. And seemingly their community had the sense about them to carefully remove a part of a, an extremity seemingly on purpose. Mm -hmm. Now, the authors point out that there doesn't seem to be any evidence to explain why this would have happened. Yeah. So we don't know if they, you know, got frostbite or gangrene set in or or what. Yeah, if it was just a mangled foot that was mm -hmm. 
painful. Right. Uh, it could have been a it could have been a terrible reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe maybe it was the wrong choice. Yeah, was, I, we have no I idea don't... why it happened. Yeah. <laughs> you lost a toe on that foot. Well, well, it's got to go. Listen, that looks weird. I don't want to. Well, Bill found this really long, sharp rock, and he's just been itching for an excuse to use it. Uh, so we don't know why it happened. Benefit of the doubt, it was for a good reason. Uh, but it seems that it did happen, which is cool because this is way before agriculture and more sedentary lifestyle. This was a foraging community, most likely. It also happens way longer before we thought that humans had the medical knowledge or skills or tools to even attempt to do something like that. I find studies like this so important as a reminder because it very often is portrayed that while we were you know, more nomadic, more on the move, it would have been basically impossible that if, yeah, if someone broke their leg, well, we got to keep moving. Stick to the code. So, ta-ta, grandma. And then once we settle down and start farming, you know, and start growing things and building huts, that, well, yeah, now if you break your leg, that still is terrible for you. But you can sit and we're not going to be... Bring you some food. Gone tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah, we can bring you food. You can even keep, you know, weaving baskets or Mm -hmm. flint napping and making tools. Like, you could even still keep helping the community. You know, so it's often been portrayed that that was the critical shift that allowed us to do that stuff. But uh, it is a good reminder that that is a a, a trap to generalize that humans were this way until this happened. And then we were this way. No, I'm sure a community is, Oh, our leader (laughs) broke their arm. So we're not going anywhere. We're going to take care of it. We're going to, we're going to, you know, settle down in this forest or next to this field until we can figure that out. And then maybe we'll start being nomadic again. Like, Humans are very, very adaptive, responsive, ingenuitive creatures. It's a good reminder that we have been a very capable communal species for a very long time. And same with the medical knowledge, that the idea that, well, surely we just didn't. Well, maybe in the vast scheme, most humans didn't. That doesn't mean all humans didn't. Now, they do point out in the study that it is, of course, extremely difficult to know if this was something that this entire population was doing, if this was the only place in the world where this was happening. Yeah. This could have been the only time it ever happened. This yeah. could be a fluke. It could be the, the one. The, the one time it was attempted and it and it worked. <laughs> this is the world's first mad scientist. Like, <laughs> wait, I've had I've had an idea for a long time. But at the very least, that this is a very early example of a complex medical procedure potentially happening. There's also some really cool artwork with the article that shows this person with their missing part of their leg with a big stick using to support themselves looking out of a cave with cave art on it. Because apparently also some of the world's oldest cave art comes from this region. Oh, cool. Very cool. That is fantastic art. And, And once again, it's like, yeah, it's nice to... Think of, you know, there would have been people who survived injuries in the past and yeah. went on to live just like people do today. Now, you did make the point about the how the title sounds rather horrifying. And like, yeah, this is all very heartwarming and cool and encouraging. Our species is real neat. But this was also 31,000 years before like antiseptics oh, yeah. or anesthetics. And it was the authors make this point. It was probably performed 
with a sharp-edged rock. Yep. Because those were the tools that we had at the time. That's what I've been picturing <laughs> the entire time we've been talking about this is exactly how do you make it through shin bones. <laughs> right. <laughs> with a sharpened now, rock. Somewhere I did read that the point that they lived in a dense forest, so there could very well have been medicinal plants mm-hmm. that were helpful for, you know, numbing pain and things like that. Uh, so the extent to which they were prepared and well-equipped for this surgery is extremely unclear. <laughs> it was probably a real bad day for this person. Does, does this person have cracked teeth from <laughs> well, clenching? And, and a point that I forgot to mention is that they said that the individual died at 19 to 20 and lived several years after the original amputation. So this probably happened when they were a child. Yeah, exactly. Like relatively young preteens or thereabouts. So this was a very delicate and unusual procedure uh, that that is a really interesting find for our human history. Well, and it brings up the interesting point of, like, was this successful because it was a child who was growing and would heal quickly? Mm-hmm. You know, And it could be. Would this not have worked? Would the same tools and the same procedure at that time not have worked on an older individual who was closer to being done growing? Tons of cool questions. Uh, If you want to read more about it, like we said, there will be links to all of these news articles in the blog post. And hey, now we're done with the news, which means we can move on to our feature presentation, our main episode topic. After the break, we will get into discussing uh, one of the coolest things that life on Earth has evolved to do over and over and over again. Gliding. We have discussed flight in many episodes of this podcast. Yep, yep. We talked about the evolution of flight back in episode six, and we have talked about various flying groups in episodes such as 37, 59, 79, 99, and more. (laughs) This episode, we are talking about a different category of things that move through the air. We're talking about gliding, which is not the same as flight, has a lot in common, and is performed by a surprisingly diverse array of species here on Earth. There are tons of cool examples of things that glide through the sky. But before we start talking about biology, let's talk about airplanes. <laughs> Slow bit. Because uh, there are terms. Yes. So when I started looking, I was like, what, what, what are the, like, the terms that go into gliding? Tons of research into gliding organisms deals with engineering Mm -hmm. and aeronautics and aerodynamics and in order to understand that stuff you have to go ask like nasa and stuff my some of my sources were nasa as i was trying to wrap my head around what what is aerodynamics about yeah because yeah gliding is a a physics performance yes of how you interact with the air as you fall through it now this episode we are not going to talk very much about the actual nitty-gritty of aerodynamics because there's way more just cool biology stuff to talk about, but also because I don't actually understand it all that well. And it's complicated. And it's complicated. That's a different episode. (laughs) But I do want to start by introducing some of the terms and concepts that will come up when you talk about aerial movement. Specifically, if you talk to pilots or aeronautical engineers, there are a list of forces that they will talk about that aircraft have to deal with. Notably, there is weight or gravity, the Mm -hmm. force that 
pulls it downwards. Everything that is in the air preferentially moves downward toward the Earth. That's what being on Earth is about. Yep. You'll hear the term drag. Yes. Drag slows down movement. So if you are moving downward, the force of the air around an an object or organism slows it. If something is moving forward, like an airplane moving forward, the force being put on it by the air around it slows down that forward movement. It's the, the pressure or the friction of the air on the object. Yes, which is bad if you want to move fast forward and great if you want to move down slowly. Yes. Lift, a similar concept. Technically, lift is what allows you to maintain height while moving forward. Lift is a force that pushes usually upward perpendicular to the direction of motion. It is the force opposite of gravity, and that's why you're not falling. (laughs) Yes, but you have to move forward in order for it to happen. To produce lift. Yes. And thrust. Thrust is super important because it is what pushes something through the air. Uh, Down, you don't need thrust, but every other direction you need thrust if you want to actively move in that direction. Uh, our aircraft produce thrust yeah. to push them along. The engines and propellers of a plane is what produces that thrust. Yes. You'll also hear terms, for example, pitch and roll and yaw, <laughs> which are the various ways that an object in the air might spin mm-hmm. in three different dimensions. And the reason that these are forces, these motions are important, is because anything moving through the air, especially if it's doing it on purpose has to deal with some degree of these forces and motions. We're not going to talk very much more about these, but these terms, these concepts will come up as we continue to talk about gliding. And while we're talking about gliding and motion through the air, here's a list of types of aerial locomotion that are often discussed. Ways that things can move through the air. Number one, falling. Yep. We've all done it. (laughs) (laughs) Every one of us is capable of this. No special adaptations needed. Some of us are more experienced than others. When falling, the most significant of those forces that is acting upon a body is gravity. (laughs) Down. There is also a term that you'll often hear, parachuting. Yes. Parachuting is used to describe when an object or organism or aircraft, invention, whatever, falls... Uh, with style, with some adaptations to increase drag to slow or control the fall. Yeah. Typically, although now this is an arbitrary distinction, but typically when we talk about animals moving through the air, parachuting is used to describe motion where the angle of descent is more than 45 degrees from horizontal, which is to say the distance they move down is more than the distance they move horizontally. Yeah. If you fall off a tree and you go 50 feet down, but only 20 feet out, that's technically parachuting, not gliding. Gliding is when it is more than that. Yeah, parachuting is a situation where you are falling more than you're moving. Yes. In any direction other than down. Gliding, again, kind of arbitrarily, is sometimes defined as moving more horizontally through the air than vertically. Gliders, be they organisms or human inventions, to slow their descent, generate lift, and move significant distances forward through the air. Yeah. Uh, Oftentimes, gliders will have adaptations for not only generating lift, but reducing drag in a forward direction, by being aerodynamic so that they're not being slowed down as much. 
a lot of gliding organisms are also rather maneuverable. They can adjust their gliding structures for maneuverability. And it is also often important for gliding things to have extra adaptations for stability. Yeah. Stability specifically to avoid the rolling and the pitching and the yawing and tumbling out of control in the air. Yeah. Like when you throw a paper airplane, it very quickly just goes into chaos. Yeah, if if you didn't make it particularly well, it can just spiral. (laughs) Yes. So gliding is controlling motion through the air, typically for relatively long distances. Gliding looks like you did it on purpose. Yes. Uh, this I, I, an animal that glides and built to soar, uh, asterisk next to that word, through the air for quite a ways. But importantly, gliding always moves down. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. initial velocity from gliding comes from being up high and falling or jumping, and then gliders move down. They don't actually push themselves through the air. They are falling, again, with style yep. and with control. There's no thrust. Uh, Now, gliders can get tricky and find areas of rising air or rising wind and catch the air and then ride that. But they have no ability to actually push themselves upwards in the air. There are lots of animals that parachute. There are lots of animals that glide. We will talk about a bunch of them in a bit. Gliding rodents, gliding frogs, gliding lizards, all sorts of cool stuff that have these various adaptations for moving through the air. And then there's flying. True flying adds in that last force. Flyers can push themselves through the air. Birds, bats, insects, pterosaurs use wings to push themselves. They can move up, forward, sideways, whatever direction they want. They can produce thrust. True flight has evolved four times in the history of evolution on Earth. Insects, pterosaurs, birds, bats, and it has been invented by one additional species uh, that doesn't just use wings. That also uses, like, propellers and balloons and stuff, which is pretty, pretty cool. But that's not what we're talking about. Now, it's important to note we will use these terms over the course of the episode, but the distinctions between them are a bit hazy, and they're not exclusive. Well, the that was my first thought when we were talking about parachuting and gli- versus gliding, is that by the definition, even, you know, you said it was arbitrary, but even by that arbitrary definition that if you're moving less forward than you are down, then you're parachuting, or if you're moving more forward than you move down, then you're gliding. But that means there is going to be a point at which, well, you moved one centimeter less than that one moved, so mm-hmm. you, par- yeah, there's going to be a perfect gradient yes. between a pure parachute, I'm just falling slow enough not to break anything, and a full-on glide that I am going way, way, way away. Right. There's going to be a perfect gradient between those two where it's going to be really hard to tell how much of this is just a really good parachute that lets you move (laughs) or a really slow glider. Right. And if you can do one, you can do all the less complex ones. Yeah. So if an animal can fly, it can glide, it can parachute. If an animal can glide, it can parachute. So uh, the the (laughs) distinctions are a bit blurry. And if you can parachute, you can fall. And if you can parachute, (laughs) you can fall. Anybody can fall. (laughs) Uh, One other term that I want to note, I I said the word soar a little earlier. Soaring, like, biologically has a definition. Soaring is something that flyers do. That's what I I was wondering, is this is when flying animals... Flying animals manage, using certain behaviors and adaptations to stay in the air for long periods of time and fly 
by riding various wind currents or updrafts to produce energy-efficient flight without having to flap very much. Yes, but minimal flap, with minimal thrust from the animal. Yes, but technically it is different than gliding for reasons we're not going to talk about here, except to note that there are some uh, animals that are really, really good at soaring. Oh, yeah. Like, someday we'll talk about that. (laughs) And then there's one other category that doesn't actually quite fit any of the ones that I just listed that I think is really important to note since we're talking about gliding organisms. The other way that an organism can move through the air is just by being really, really small. Yep. While I was putting together notes for this episode, I was reminded of a term which I had forgotten exists, and the term is aeroplankton. (laughs) Yeah. That's a thing. Our planet is full of organisms that are so small that they just get carried by the wind. Yep. The sky is full of viruses, bacteria, algae, fungi, seeds, pollen, spores, tiny insects, tiny animals that are just carried around by the wind. That is also not what we're talking about in this episode. Yes. But it's important to note. <laughs> that's that's getting closer to swimming yeah. than it is gliding or now flying. You're doing something different. <laughs> you also have things that can't fall fast enough where it's not even that they're have like a parachuting structure it's just you're too tiny to fall fast enough for it to be dangerous like an ant Mm -hmm. like those parachute just because the air is thick to them and technically you're falling but there's a lot of drag yeah but it's not you're not necessarily adapted to drag there yeah there's all sorts of haziness as we will see in a bit there are lots of things that glide uh using gliding membranes gliding adaptations to again soar but not technically soar yeah through the air And before we get into actually listing some examples, I want to address what makes gliding good. There are certain benefits to gliding, and these are going to come up as we go through some of our diversity of gliding. One major benefit of gliding is that it makes it really easy to get around. Mm -hmm. If, especially in situations like a forested habitat, gliding is way more energy efficient than climbing down a tree, walking across the floor, and climbing up the next tree. You can just glide from one to the other. Gliding doesn't take a huge amount of energy because a lot of it is passively riding the air, so it's a very energy-efficient way of navigating an ecosystem. Also really handy if, for some reason, you don't want to touch the floor. Yeah. Uh, And there could be all sorts of reasons why you might not want to touch the floor. Gliding is also very commonly seen as a method of predator avoidance. If a little flying squirrel is up in a tree and a cat comes running up the branch, That squirrel can jump off the branch and glide away, and that predator can't follow it. Yes. And also, gliding is just really gliding, parachuting, so any method of controlling one's descent is really handy if you are in a situation where you might fall. Yep. It allows you to avoid falling. (laughs) Yep. If you live in a tree, being able to control a descent is not a bad adaptation to have because you live very high up in the air. But it does, as we're talking about costs and benefits bring us to the sort of corollary question, why not fly? Yes. Why would, why, what's the point of gliding and not, why don't all gliders inevitably just start flapping wings and start flying? And the main answer is that in many cases, gliding is actually better than flight. It is way cheaper. Yeah. It is way less costly to glide. That is one of the reasons why so many birds will glide a bunch of the time. Because if you can glide and you don't have to flap, that saves a whole lot of energy. <laughs> I think the easiest way to show how you know, much cheaper and, and easier to form a gliding thing it, 
you can make a gliding thing out of a piece of paper. Like you can make a paper yes. airplane. Just I want everyone to just think for a how much more work would it take to then make that paper airplane fly? Yes. And that is actually a really good point because another reason that flight is so much harder than gliding is because you do have to have very specific adaptations. Yeah. And those might get in the way of other stuff. Yeah. It was what we've said before of like, you know, bats are extremely good at flying. They're more efficient flyers than birds, like energy wise, but they are not typically very good in any other space (laughs) other than in the air. They're not good runners. No. Because their bodies have adapted in such a way that they can't really run properly. They can't swim well. Having the body of a flyer is very restrictive. Yeah. I actually did see one study that I was reading that referenced a work that did some calculations and found that, as they put it, even for birds, it is more efficient to climb up something and then glide a while than to fly directly towards the tree you want if the distance is beyond a certain threshold. Like, yeah. Even for animals that fly, it is more efficient in, in certain cases to climb and then glide than to fly. Yeah. Because flying is just a hard thing to do. Now, that's a whole lot of background on the concept of gliding, but that's not why you listen to this podcast. Surely you want to hear us talk about some things that actually do it. So let's go through what is the diverse, the incredible diversity of gliding things on our planet with special focus on how they are adapted to do these things and just how many ways nature has come up with to achieve this ridiculous behavior. This is my favorite thing about gliding is the weird variety of gliding structures. Yes. Right off the bat, flyers glide. Yep. Bats, birds, uh, pterosaurs, presumably uh, many of many of them are thought to have been good gliders. Insects will glide. Uh, certain insects are better at it than others. For mm-hmm. example, I, I came across one study that was looking at gliding in butterflies. Yes. And they'll alternate between flapping and gliding. So right off the bat, if, if it can fly, it can glide most of the time. But again, that's not who we're talking about today. Gliders. Now, so far, all of the examples we've given and the examples that you at home are probably thinking of have been animals. But I do want to make mention that there are gliders among plants. Yep. Specifically, there are plants that have seeds that ride the wind. Uh, and this is something that you already know. If you live in a place with plants, you, you probably have interacted with these seeds. There are two general kinds of seeds that ride the wind. There are papos seeds, which are seeds that have tufts of hair that produce enough drag that they can ride the air, ride the wind. Dandelion seeds, for example, are the classic example of this. And then there are seeds with wings. Yeah, actual wings. Seeds that have big flattened sections that grow off of the main seed body that allow them to produce drag and or lift for moving through the air. And there's all sorts of winged seeds, some which glide straight, some which rock back and forth like a falling leaf. A bunch of them spin or spiral through the air. Mm-hmm. These are all ways for seeds to catch the air and either parachute or glide to get extra distance to disperse. Yeah, that if the wind is what knock you loose, then you can catch that wind a bit and get farther away from the plant, the parent plant. Yeah. And go spread to somewhere new. Uh, this is, Pine seeds do this, cedar seeds, ash seeds, dandelions. Like I said, there's all sorts of plants that have evolved adaptations 
for catching the air. Yeah. Now, all of those are passive gliding in the sense that the plant is not choosing what direction to go. Probably. (laughs) When we talk about animals parachuting and gliding, we are really interested in directional movement. Animals that can move themselves through the air. And among the animals, there are so many examples of this. We're going to just we're just going to breeze through a whole (laughs) bunch of awesome examples and talk about the diversity of gliders, starting with invertebrates, starting with what I'm sure will be one of Will's favorite examples. uh, Ants. Yeah, there are gliding ants. They're real. It's really neat. (laughs) There are numerous species of ants that have been observed if they fall off a branch. They can control their descent and usually glide back into the tree trunk. Yeah. I've, I've and then s- crawl back up. I've seen a video of it where it's you can watch the ants moving around in the trunk. And then every now and then one will fall off and just do a little in-air U-turn and come back to the trunk of the tree. Yeah. And just climb back to the, co- the colony. And if I remember right, at least for that species of ant... They orient their body a specific way. Yes. And they're aerodynamic backwards. They fly (laughs) abdomen first. Gliding ants go backwards. Yes. They tend to have, they'll often will have flattened legs or bodies or heads. They'll be a little flatter, which just increases drag and allows them to control their descent. The purpose of this is just to save themselves the trip. Oh, yeah. This way you don't have to go all the way back up the tree. This way you don't fall all the way to the ground where there could be predators or a pond or something. This behavior has also been seen in bristletails, which are also insects, and some spiders. Oh, that makes sense. They direct themselves headfirst. Yeah. Weird. (laughs) Also, of course, uh, spiders famously will use silk drag lines to do what is called ballooning. This is seen in baby spiders, but also apparently some small adult spiders. Yeah, I've heard about that. They put out a line of silk and it catches the air and they ride it. And that's... And that's one where, like, the more recent research has even shown that it may be interacting with electromagnetic forces in the air. Right. Like, it is really complicated what they're doing and it's weird. (laughs) So we're not going to talk about that. Nope. Uh, Episode 123, spiders. (laughs) There are also gliding squids. Oh, yeah, there are. I forgot about those. Yep. (gasps) For example, the Pacific flying squid, which will propel themselves out of the water, and then they have fins on their mantle, which Mm -hmm. is the the torpedo-shaped part of the squid. Yeah, that's the arrow-shaped top part of squids when you see them. And those big fins will provide enough drag-slash-lift for them to then glide over the waves. That's insane. In the case of these squids, the purpose of gliding, the main function seems to be getting away from predators. Yep. Much like how a gliding squirrel can leave the tree from a predator that can't follow it, if you live in the ocean and your threat is a fish or a shark or something, they they can only be in the water. Yep. <laughs> if you can jump out and fly away, they can't do anything. So these squids will glide across uh, over the surface of the water before dropping back in. Also, here's just a ridiculous little note that I came across while reading about these. Uh, squids move from by jet propulsion, mm-hmm. and that's how they get out of the water. They shoot themselves up out of the water. Apparently, there is possible reports that these flying squids will continue to use jet propulsion in the air oh, whoa. to give themselves a little bit of extra thrust. And if that is true, it would make them, as the wording was when I read it, the only known animal 
that jet propels itself through the air. Yes! <laughs> it's like Alien Planet. Yes. <laughs> so that would make squids and airplanes. <laughs> and speaking of things that jump out of the water and glide through the air, moving on to vertebrates, some of the most accomplished gliding animals on the planet are fish. Yeah. Flying fish are extremely common and diverse. There are multiple families of gliding fish with dozens of species. The most famous is the, the family Exocetidae, which are often called the flying fish. Mm-hmm. They are found in all oceans, mostly in the tropics and subtropics. Flying fish use powerful tails to push themselves up out of the water. And then their method of gliding is that their front fins are very long and very broad. Like wings. Yep. They're doing the same thing that wings are doing. Those big pectoral fins, and in some cases, also pelvic fins. Some flying fish are referred to as biplane type flying fish. They have four wings. The front fins and the back fins are all acting to catch the air and allow them to glide. Once again, this is something they do to avoid predators. They will jump out of the water, sometimes in groups. If like a whole bunch of these fish are spooked at the same time, you'll just get a flock Gliding over the waves. Flying fish have been reported to glide for hundreds of meters over the surface of the water. They have been reported to ride the updrafts on the side of waves <laughs> to get a little bit of height. Some have been reported to dip back down to the surface of the water and use their tail to push themselves back up into the air. Without fully submerging. Without submerging, so they just keep jumping off the top of it. And some of them apparently will even flap their fins. <laughs> I don't think it's known if that helps very much, but they do it. But there's motion. But there's motion. Which, like, it is so fascinating that it's not just like a quick, I can jump real far, mm-hmm. like, to try to get away from a predator. But it's like, no, I can actually travel. Like yeah, they clear some serious distance. Like, that predator will not find them. Yeah. They are gone. Yes. And we see it in both the fish and the squids that have adaptations both for getting themselves out of the water and then for riding the air, creating an airfoil, which is what we'll off- we call that shape that catches the air that provides lift to keep an animal up in the air. With fish, they've already got the fins for it. Mm-hmm. They have these fins. They glide through the air. And you're already aerodynamic because if you're hydrodynamic you're usually pretty aerodynamic yeah they tend to be relatively thin and torpedo-ish shaped which is great for moving through the air yeah if you're wanting to move through a fluid that's how you move and both liquid and gases are fluid structures yeah so some of the most accomplished gliders on the world are fish (laughs) now moving into tetrapods terrestrial animals Uh, You will notice a trend, and that is every other example that is on this list is a species that lives in trees. Yeah. Among amphibians, there are plenty of parachuting and gliding frogs. Yeah. Arboreal frogs. They live in trees. There are multiple families, including Racophoridae and Hylidae, which between the two of them are found in Asia, Australia, and the Americas, that have been seen either slowing their descent or, in some cases, truly gliding, making some real distance. The adaptations that frogs use to do this, to catch the air, are membranes between the digits. Yeah. They have webbed toes and feet. That webbing 
and they have big feet, that produces a bunch of surface area for lift. And this is another one of those, like you were saying with the fish, where you have fins, frogs have webbed feet, Mm -hmm. so you already have a flat, wide membrane. Yeah. So just make it wider and bigger. Some frogs will also have extra membranes along the sides of their limbs, just for a little extra bit of lift, and uh, often flatter bodies. Gliding frogs tend to flatten their bodies out while they're in the air, and it makes them a pretty capable little froggy airfoil. That's awesome. Easily among the examples on this list, frogs are the most awkward looking while gliding. Because flying fish look like they're doing something pretty normal for fish. Well, it you look like you're, you know, swimming through the air. Like, yeah. you look like you should be doing that. The frog looks like it is in a situation that it really wishes it wasn't in, and yet it's making it work. Well, and the other thing that's so weird to me about gliding frogs is the structure you're using. Just your hands and feet for the most part. Like, you know, you've your flatter body, you position it correctly, you have mm-hmm. fringes around your limbs sometimes, but mainly you've got four little wings, four little airfoils at the end of each limb. Yeah, they're not doing a wing shape like we see in flyers and like we see in the fish and even the squids. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, it makes me think of the first time I saw a quadcopter, like a drone quadcopter. I was like, that doesn't look like it should move through the air. Right. Like, it doesn't look like a plane. It doesn't look like a helicopter. It looks awkward and weird. That's what a frog looks like to me. Yes. This shouldn't work. And yet... It does. There you go. <laughs> also, if anyone wants to do fan art of gliding frog quadcopters, feel free. We're not, not going to tell you, no. <laughs> Incidentally, I will be linking, uh, including both photos and links to videos yes. in the blog post for those who want to see what... There's a bunch of great like BBC footage of a lot of these gliders in action. Uh, not only does the frog gliding work, it works really well. Some species have been noted to glide several meters between the trees, and some are even notably very maneuverable. Okay, like aiming. Yeah, they can adjust. And in the case of frogs, when we're thinking of those forces and motions that they have to deal with, gliders need to have a way to adjust their position in the air. Frogs are going to do this very similarly to the way that the ants are going to do it. It is a whole body action. You're adjusting the position of the limbs, maybe twisting the body a bit to get just the right balance of forces and to angle in a direction. Because frogs gliding surfaces on their limbs, they have a lot of control over how exactly they catch the air and how exactly they move while descending. Now, fish have evolved to glide multiple times. Frogs have evolved to glide multiple times. Mammals have evolved to glide Many times. Yep. There's a bunch of gliding mammals. The main famous examples, there are gliding rodents, multiple different families that are called flying squirrels, (laughs) which are found in Asia, Europe, and the Americas, dozens of species. There's a bunch of gliding marsupials, many species, again, in multiple families, including gliding possums, sugar gliders, and their cousins. These are found in Australia and New Guinea. And there are Kalugos. Kalugos! Kalugos are close cousins of primates. They're sometimes called flying lemurs, although they're technically not lemurs. They live in Southeast Asia. This is several, multiple rodent groups, multiple marsupial groups, and Kalugos have all evolved gliding. Not to mention bats, which have evolved flight. All of these examples of, of gliding mammals are tree dwellers. They're all arboreal. 
and all of them fly their patagium. So patagium is a term we've uh, referred to in previous episodes of the podcast. That is the gliding surface. Technically, patagium is used also in like pterosaurs. I think that's the episode we first, well, pterosaurs and bats. We talked about patagium in both examples. They are membranes, flaps of skin that are there to catch the air. I, potagium technically could be used also for the frogs, for their webbing, for the fish, for their wings, but it is especially used to refer to the structure in mammals. In all the gliding mammals, they have flaps of skin between the limbs. Yeah. So if you think of a wingsuit, right, like a, a person in a wingsuit, gliding mammals do it like that. They jump off of a tree, spread the arms and legs out to the side, and they stretch this flap of skin that goes often from the hand down to the foot on both sides of the body. Yep. This gives a lot of gliding mammals sort of a box shape. They're like kites. Yeah. Gliding mammals take on the shape of kites when they glide. Yeah, they've got a square fly gliding surface with a little head up front and a tail dragging behind. Yes. Oftentimes, the patagium will stretch from wrist to ankle, sometimes fingers to toes. Some species have extra little spurs, extra hard cartilage on the arm somewhere that helps maneuver the patagium, that helps it to spread out when they need to unfurl it. And some of them will have extra membranes next to the face or next to the tail to make even more of a gliding surface. Gliding mammals often have very strong muscles, and they are controlling their flight path by moving their arms or legs, and with the tail. Yeah. Just like jumping and climbing mammals will use their tail to help balance them, gliding mammals do the same thing. That tail moves around to help them stay stable, to avoid flipping and rolling and going off course. Mammals are super good at this. Yeah. Some flying squirrels are noted to have be able to glide hundreds of meters, just sailing through the trees. Yeah, really efficiently. Kalugos are extremely specialized gliders. Kaluga's gliding surface is probably the most thorough gliding surface of any animal that we have. They have their patagium membrane, goes from the tips of their fingers down to the tips of their toes on both sides. Their fingers and toes are all webbed from tip to tip. They have membrane from the legs to the tip of the tail and from the paws to the face. When a kalugo spreads out its full membrane, at the, well, the way one study described it, no part of the body extends past the membrane. <laughs> they are just a kite in the air. Just gliding surface. It's, it's all gliding surface. A kalugo unfurls itself into a parachute. Yep. And this speciality reflects, and I've seen a video one time of a kalugo moving on the ground. And it looks like a broken umbrella crawling across. Like, they are super awkward. They're great at climbing up and down trees. Yeah. You know, they can hug the tree and move up and down. But if you put them on flat ground, they have to kind of flop. <laughs> they have yeah, to... Kind of like a bat. Like a bat. They are extremely specialized for climbing and then sailing between the trees. Yes. Whereas gliding squirrels tend to be much more capable. Yeah. Uh, they can move around on the ground. They can climb up and down trees. They can unfurl or tuck away those flaps of skin when they're not using them. Yeah, they're about as maneuverable as chipmunks and squirrels normally would be. They can just also jump good. Yes. So gliding has evolved several times in mammals, modern mammals. Another thing that's really interesting to me about mammal gliders is that they 
basically all evolved the same general structure yes. for gliding. But these are not related groups. No, and it's also not like fish or frogs where oftentimes they're using adaptations that are already very common to that group of animals. Yeah. All these different groups of mammals evolved the same basic shape of potangium. That is unique to those groups among mammals. Yeah, that seems it just it seems to be the way for a mammal to go through the air. It's very cool. Now we see a slightly different situation in gliding reptiles. All modern day gliding reptiles are squamates, which is just a less obvious sounding way of saying that there are no gliding turtles or crocs. <laughs> yep. <laughs> For some reason. For some reason. Who can, who can imagine why? <laughs> there are a variety of different groups of gliding geckos. Mm -hmm. They are found in Asia. They are kind of, they're doing very similar to what mammals do. These geckos, they tend to have webbed feet flat bodies and flaps of skin along the side of the body, the neck, the, the body, the tail. These flaps tend to be really good for camouflage. It lets them hug a tree and disappear into the branch because it breaks up the outline of the body. Well, yeah, the, the body smooths down to the surface of the tree. So like it's very hard to find the seam between animal and plant. Yes, but they also serve as a gliding surface, as potagium. These geckos will fall or jump off of a branch, and then I think in their case, the gliding surface opens mostly passively. Yeah. It catches the air, and they could spread out their limbs, and it catches the air, and then they can use it to glide. They're controlling their descent very similarly to how the mammals do with their arms, legs, body motions. Some of them are parachuters, really just falling slowly, but others are quite capable at gliding. There are also some gliding lacerted lizards in Africa that have small flattened bodies. But the most famous gliding squamates of all are the Draco lizards of Southeast Asia. These are agamids, so they're in the same group as like bearded dragons and things like that. There are dozens of species. These are among the most specialized gliders in the world. Yeah, on this planet. <laughs> Draco lizards support their gliding surface between a bunch of extra long hyperextended ribs on both sides of the body. Usually, I think like seven or eight ribs along the side of the body just fold out and extend with a gliding surface between them. These lizards kind of have an extra pair of appendages that are wings. Yep. They are called flying dragons, and they kind of are flying dragons. No, they've got four <laughs> legs. They've got four limbs for walking around, and then two wings separate from those. Yeah. Those ribs will fold in to, to fold up the potagium, the, the surfaces, and then when the lizard jumps off of a tree or something, they can extend, they can unfurl those wings, and they are shaped like bird wings or like the flying fish fins in that classic broad, long wing shape that gives them tons of surface area for catching the air and gliding through the air. Draco lizards often will also have uh, extra scales along the length of their legs that just give a little bit of extra flat surface mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and flaps of skin on the throat Ooh. that can also extend 
to help provide stability <gasps> while gliding through the air. Instead of a tail fin, they have a throat fin? Yes, and I think, in, at least in some of them, it extends laterally. Oh, really? So, uh, and I, I didn't look super deeply into this because this is already a long episode. Hmm. But I think it's not just potentially acting as like the tail fin of a plane, but also as... A third little wing. Yeah, extra set of... So like the in a, in a plane, there's the fin that is vertical... But there's also the tail wing, basically. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the horizontal. Yeah, they can go horizontal, I believe. <gasps> That's so cool. Which adds a little bit of extra stability, a little bit of extra control for maneuvering through the air. Draco lizards are super good at gliding. Once again, they have been noted to glide for hundreds of feet. I keep alternating between feet and meters because that's what my sources said. <laughs> Draco lizards, I read hundreds of feet. Hundreds of feet, which is also kind of hundreds of meters. They're maneuverable. They are re they are highly specialized for it. And there was a study not too long ago that I think we might have talked about on the podcast, or maybe I wrote about it. Maybe I wrote a news article about it at some point that observed the lizards as they glide through the air. Typically, when they glide through the air, what we see is they jump, they throw their arms and legs out in the air, kind of like the gliding frogs, and then the rib wings extend and they glide. This study took slow motion footage and observed that they will actually throw the arms out, which are in front of the gliding membrane, and then turn the hands and reach back and grab hold of their wings so that they can get a little extra maneuverability using their arms to maneuver their wings as they glide through the air. Yep. These videos are so cool. Did they take their little lizard hands... And they grab their wings and then fly with them. To really drive it home to everyone how cool that is, that's how Batman glides around in the Arkham games. <laughs> that's true. So yes. these lizards, canon, are as cool as Batman. And this is a style of gliding that is wholly unique among modern animals. There is nothing else on the planet that does this. Whereas mammals are gliding all basically the same way. The geckos are gliding very similarly to how the mammals glide and sort of how the frogs glide. Draco lizards are one of a kind. Yeah, it is so awesome. It's they're cool looking and yeah, they just move through the air and it moves exactly the way you'd think something that looks that way should move. They're really, really amazing. Yeah. And one last thing, speaking of wholly unique ways of flying. There are also gliding snakes, Woo! which I, I'm I, of course, am always here to pitch the awesomeness of snakes. Gliding snakes, I will freely admit, sounds like a thing that should not work. Oh, yeah. That should not, given all the body shapes that we just described, even though we have a lot of different adaptations for it, all the gliders we've talked about are mostly doing very similar things. You've got wings or you've got something that acts kind of like a wing sticking off your body but like limbs are really important for all the gliders that we've discussed so far Well, because if you want to be able to glide you need to catch air and the easiest way to catch air is to spread things out <laughs> and create a wide surface yeah. also limbs are very mobile which allows you to maneuver to adjust to control for stability and for where what direction you want to go snakes don't have any of those options mm -mm. and yet there are several species in the genus Chrysopelea, which live in Southeast Asia, which are flying snakes, the most studied of which I believe is the paradise tree snake. These are 
arboreal snakes. They will leap from the trees and glide through the air. Here's how they do it. They flatten out their body by expanding their ribs. So they don't have like super long ribs like the Draco lizards. They just spread the ribs out a bit. Which is not super unusual for snakes. You know, that's how cobras expand their hood and everything. Absolutely. These snakes do it from head to vent. (laughs) All the way down the body. And not only does this widen the body, but it forms, they suck in the belly. Okay. To form a concave shape underneath. So it's not a flat belly. It curves inward a bit. Uh, When I was a kid, I had a frisbee. So frisbees, which I think are just called flying discs in places that aren't the United States. Yeah, yeah, that that aren't recognize that brand. Yes, exactly. Uh, Some frisbees are a full circle and they're shaped like a trash can lid or a hubcap where it the top surface is slightly bowed upwards and the underside is bowed in so that it has a lot of space to catch the, the air. I remember I had a Frisbee when I was a kid that was just a ring of flat plastic. Yeah. The center was totally empty. Which was, that was my favorite kind. Yep. And the flat ring, like Saturn's ring, the ring itself was bowed slightly upwards. Yes, it's still shaped like a Frisbee, it's just missing the middle. These snakes shape their whole body like that. It's like, you, it's just the straight version of that. And then they slither through the air. They undulate back and forth, just like they do on the ground just like sea snakes do in the water. And there have been studies that have found that this undulation is their way of providing stability to their flight. They don't have limbs, they don't have wings, but their body is long enough that they can cover enough area in the air to stabilize their path as they move through the sky. Yeah, it's if you take a rope and put it into an S shape, a serpentine shape, you will end up with broad sections going left and right like wings. Yes. So they make wings out of loops. (laughs) And this isn't just like, all right, yeah, they technically fall slower. These snakes, again, have been documented gliding over a hundred feet of horizontal distance. And, and this is a, a thing that I've heard noted about them a lot. They have been documented making 90 degree turns. Wow. They are highly maneuverable through the air. They're really good at gliding. That's in the, the that degree of a turn is crazy. Yeah, I did not. Now, to be fair, I did not find like a paper that yes. said that, but I have seen that number cited a bunch. Uh, so I don't know, maybe it's an exact. Yeah, but like it, an extreme turn, not like a slight skewing left or right. Yeah. But like, nope, I want to go to that tree. Yeah. And I changed my mind midway through. <laughs> so just all over the world, there are dozens of different groups that have evolved using several different methods of gliding, of doing all the things that gliders need to do. And this, I think, is really interesting because we've talked about flight a bunch. Flight has evolved, like we said, four times. Flight is hard. It is really hard to do, apparently. Gliding shows up everywhere. Gliding is all over the world in tons of different habitats. Gliding seems paradoxically easy for evolution to stumble upon over and over again. Which makes perfect sense to me, because you'll see animals that parachute having no structure for it, basically. Mm -hmm. Like squirrels. If a squirrel falls, they spread their limbs out to flatten their body out and catch more air. And I've seen a squirrel, like, jump off a 10-story, I don't know what it was, apartment building, land and then run to the park across the street. 
Yeah. Because they can slow down enough to parachute safely from great heights. It makes perfect sense that just, yeah, you add a little bit of flappy skin and you're going to start moving forward every time you parachute. Yes. There has been a lot of discussion in scientific literature about how gliding evolves, what are the patterns we see among gliding things. Like I mentioned that all the tetrapod gliders are also tree dwellers. Mm Mm-hmm. And I've got a bunch of more things to say about that later on in the episode. We'll talk about patterns in gliding evolution. But we've been having so much fun just going through and geeking out about gliders today. After the break, we're going to go through and geek out about extinct gliders and what we know about gliders from the fossil record. Stay tuned. Interpreting gliders in the fossil record can be tricky. We've discussed plenty of times on the podcast before how figuring out the behavior of ancient animals can be tricky in the first place. One way that we identify gliders in the fossil record is by identifying members of gliding groups. If they're recent enough geologically, we can do that. For example, there are fossil exocetids, which is the group that includes the flying fish, There are fossil relatives of colugos. There are fossils of flying squirrels. We actually have flying squirrel teeth at the gray fossil site. Yeah, we do. And those are teeth that come from this particular group of mammals that glide. So we can say, yeah, those are gliders. We can also use modern animals to make estimates for when gliding evolved. Last episode, we talked about genetic molecular clock estimates. We can estimate, all right, these have been around for a certain amount of time. But once we step outside of groups we still have today, it becomes tricky. And in order to know that a particular fossil species glided, we either need some shorefire skeletal adaptation, which can be really tough to do because in certain animals like flying squirrels, for example, the body, there are are things in the skeleton that tend to correlate with gliding, But it can be really hard to say, was this for sure a glider? Or like gliding frogs or gliding snakes, that doesn't always show something in the skeleton. So the other option is that we just have to find a a fossil that is so well-preserved... It's fossilized midair. Just in the sky, (laughs) just floating there for eternity. No, that's ridiculous. A fossil that is so well-preserved that it shows us the soft tissue of the gliding surfaces. Because those tend to be soft stuff. Yeah. Animals don't have bone wings. Yes. It's a skin. It's a membrane that is supported by the body. Yeah. Other than insects, which their gliding stuff is made out of the same stuff as the rest of their body. Mm -hmm. So if they fossilize, their wings could fossilize. But otherwise, tricky. So in order to identify a fossil glider, we either need a really good skeletal indicator or just soft tissue preservation both of which are relatively rare. But on the other hand, gliders are relatively common. And this raises an interesting uh, set of possibilities. Gliders today are extremely common. If gliders were also common in the past, there's much better chance that we would find fossil evidences. But if gliders haven't been that common throughout history, odds are we're going to find very little evidence of them because the surefire ways we could tell are so unlikely in the first place. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't you know it, there are so many fossil gliders. (laughs) We have so many examples 
of gliding in the fossil record. Because fancy falling has been useful for a long time. It sure has. Starting with more recent stuff, I did a quick search online and found that there are numerous examples of fossil winged seeds. Cool. Uh, preser- I found a number of examples of pine and spruce seeds preserved in sediment. I found a 1996 study that identified an Eocene rodent from Germany that was preserved so well that it had fur and skin impressions or the, the carbonized film, the residue of that soft tissue in the sediment around it. That showed a patagium, the extra flaps of skin. That is a cool find because not only is that, at least at the time of publication, the oldest known gliding rodent at probably 40 or so million years old, but that rodent belonged to an extinct family of rodents, Ah. not related to any of the modern gliding groups. So that is a different group of rodents that evolved gliding. Nice. And if we go back even further, it turns out the mammal lineage has done this a bunch. There is a famous animal from the early Cretaceous of China named Volaticotherium, which was described from an excellent specimen preserved like a lot of Chinese fossils. This is in one of those awesome Chinese fossil sites where whole bodies are pressed into the sediment and you get all the cool soft tissue uh, hair and feathers and stuff. This is a mammal not part of any modern group of mammals, just an extinct group of mammals, that is preserved well enough to show the flaps of skin between the limbs. Uh, Not only can we see the patagium from the arms to the legs, but we can see the fur on the patagium. They had a furry patagium, a furry flap. Velaticotherium had long limbs, like modern gliding mammals, a flat and stiff tail vertebrae, like modern gliding mammals that will use their tail as a stabilizer, And it was a similar size to modern flying squirrels. Cool. It's basically a flying squirrel, but a completely extinct group of mammals that lived in the early Cretaceous. This is over a hundred million years ago alongside dinosaurs. There's also a a potential cousin of Velaticotherium in South America named Argentoconodon, also possibly a glider. Cool. And if we go back even further... There are gliders among mammalia forms. Before true mammals, the ancestral cousins of mammals, there is a group called the Haramiodins, which are mammalia form gliders from the Jurassic of China. Several species are known from, again, very well-preserved fossils, all around 150 million years old, including such famous names that you might have heard of as Myopatagium, Villavolodon, Shenshu, Arboroharamia, all of them show furry membranes. In the very best of these fossil specimens, they have patagia that go from the neck to the wrist, the wrist to the ankle, the ankle to the tail. Hey! A full patagial kite all around the body. Unsurprisingly, all of them are adapted, show adaptations for living in trees, as we see with all the other tetrapod gliders. They have long limbs. They have long fingers. This is the same thing as modern gliding mammals in a group that is outside of mammals. (laughs) This isn't even just a mammal thing. Mammalia forms were doing this. That's so awesome. And this is in the Jurassic. This is over 150 million years. Furry creatures have been gliding like this. And there's even some evidence that among the gliders, they were partitioned in their lifestyle. 
So one uh, study that I read noted that myopatagium is squirrel-sized, and the teeth look like they were probably eating a lot of fruit, and villavolodon is smaller, mouse-sized, and looks like they were eating seeds. So even among the gliding mammal cousins, they were living different lifestyles. That's cool. So yeah, not only is the furry mammal patagium between the, the limbs a thing that is super widespread in modern mammals, that's just been a thing that furry animals have been doing for 150 million years at least. Which I love because, wow. But also, if you were to time travel back through the Mesozoic, through a chunk of it, because like often it's portrayed that like, yeah, if you were to travel back to the Mesozoic, you know, here, Jurassic and Cretaceous, really the only things that would be familiar would be things like turtles and crocs and bugs right right but everything else would be basically alien like you have you have lizards and snakes you know for a good bit of that but not much else nope you'd have furry gliding things oh yeah zipping around just like flying squirrels zip around yep (laughs) absolutely that's just a thing that they've been doing forever which is such a weird thing to be (laughs) familiar that far back well and especially since they're gliding through forests that are inhabited by like stegosaurs yeah. and allosaurs and stuff. It, it's it's super cool. And they're all known. Again, there will be links and pictures in the blog post. You can see the patagium in the fossil. It's the animal buried, pressed into the, the, the sediment with its skeleton all there. And then just this like tarp around <laughs> it that is attached to the body. See, we're going to find out that this was actually a uh, Cretaceous crime scene and they had laid (laughs) this over the body (laughs) so that the public wouldn't see it. Uh, I think I don't have it in my notes. I feel like I also read that some of them possibly had little spurs on the limbs to help maneuver the patagium. So, yeah, they were basically exactly like modern gliding mammals. That's incredible. I say exact. There were definitely differences, but they are beyond the scope of this episode. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not differences that either I or David. (laughs) Speaking of familiar gliders back in the Mesozoic, also from the early Cretaceous of China, there is an ancient species of gliding lizard. Ooh. Uh, This is a lizard not part of any of the lizard groups today. This is yet another independent evolution of gliding. This lizard is called Xianglong. Once again exceptionally well-preserved, with part of the patagium preserved, which is real handy. Although in this case, we might have figured it out even if we didn't have the patagium, because wouldn't you know it, this early Cretaceous lizard has extra long ribs that extend out to the side, just like Draco lizards. Yay! So earlier when we were geeking out about how cool it is that Draco has this unique gliding. No, apparently not. This Cretaceous, totally unrelated lizard also did the same thing with the ribs wings. Oh, that's so cool. Also adapted for living in trees, for climbing around in trees. So, yeah, both lizards and mammals and their cousins (laughs) were doing this in the Jurassic and Cretaceous. How cool is that? Man, just... I will feel slightly that any documentary or paleo art that does not include little flitting gliders zipping around the heads of dinosaurs is just is just lacking something. Yeah. Listen, Prehistoric Planet Season 2. <laughs> those skies better be full. Yeah, that's my new criticism. <laughs> <laughs> Listen up, Darren. Uh, speaking of dinosaurs, there are also gliders among dinosaurs. Yeah. Now, obviously, dinosaurs include birds. 
and there have been birds since the late Jurassic. Birds are gliders. They can glide. The flying ones can, at least. The flat's true. The fly- <laughs> birds that fly often can also glide. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you glide through the water. Uh, there were also flying birds back during the Cretaceous and the Jurassic. But in addition to that, there were a whole bunch of near-bird dinosaurs that we know were covered in feathers that had wings on their arms, even though they weren't actually flying with them. Dinosaurs like Velociraptor, a lot of the small Dromaeosaurs and Troodontids and things. And it has been suggested that a lot of those small, feathery, not-quite-bird dinosaurs were possibly using their wing appendages to slow their descent, to at least parachute, to help when they're running or climbing or jumping. We saw that. Speaking of Prehistoric Planet, they showed the Velociraptors doing that, jumping down the cliffs, using their wings to control their descent. And it has been suggested that some of them might even have been able to glide. Now, showing this for sure is very difficult to do. But generally speaking, there were probably a bunch of dinosaurs closely related to birds that were at least parachuting yes. with their feathery wings and feathery bodies. And like you're saying, if you can if if you can parachute, it's not that much of a stretch to then evolve gliding. So yes. Now there are a couple of dinosaurs that I will mention specifically because they have been studied intentionally in this regard. The first is Microraptor. Yep. And what's cool about Microraptor is not only has it been the subject of studies, but if it was a glider, it was yet again doing something different than gliders that we see today or otherwise. Microraptor is a very small dromaeosaur. I think like raven-sized is what I often hear. Closely related to birds. Once again, early Cretaceous China, because this is where we get those awesome fossils with their feathers and things preserved around them. Wasn't it also raven-colored? Like, yeah, they, they were. They yeah. had, the, the one study found that they had that... Um, iridescent. Iridescent dark. Bluish black. Yep, exactly. Which is... Oh, very cool. Microraptor is preserved extraordinarily well in at least one specimen, I believe multiple specimens, that show just all these feathers uh, that it had on its body. Asymmetric flight-capable feathers. Or like... Feathers that can catch the air that are structured in such a way that they're really good at catching the air on both the arms and the legs. Yeah. Microraptor is not unique in this regard. There were a bunch of near bird dinosaurs back then, and even birds, that have these broad feathers on both the front and back limbs. Microraptor stands out because there have been studies specifically aimed at asking the question, could this thing move through the air? There have been studies that have just looked at from a biomechanical perspective. There have been studies that have created models of Microraptor and stuck them in wind tunnels. I think both digitally and physically, like built models, and have found uh, numerous times that Microraptor probably could glide. And it would have done so effectively with four wings. Very much, like, not quite like birds today, more like flying fish do (laughs) with their front and back fins. Yeah, which I remember when it first came out and they said it's got seemingly four wings. My brain at that time went to flying. Right. And I was like, how would you flap your wet legs? So like, how? But from a gliding perspective, yeah, no, you've got the flying fish that do that with their front and back fins. you got the f- gliding frogs that do that with their front and back limbs. Yep. 
That's not that unusual. You're just increasing that surface area. In the case of this animal, not with a skin flap, but with feathers. Yes. The way that birds do it. Birds and their their close cousins use feathers to catch the air instead of parts of the skin or expanded parts of their, like, torso and stuff. Microraptor also had a long tail with broad feathers on it that probably would have acted as a stabilizer. The other group of dinosaurs that gets a lot of attention in the gliding topic are a group called Scansoriopterygids. These are also relatively closely related to birds, quite small, feathery. Uh, They are thought to have been arboreal. And one of the things that stands out about them is that Scansoriopterygids tend to have one really long finger that previously has been suggested that they might have used it like an eye-eye yeah. to probe into logs and trunks and stuff and to get out bugs. But very famously at this point, in the last several years or so, two specimens of two different species of Scansoriopterygids, Yi, Y-I, and Ambopteryx, have both been found with, again, exceptional preservation, to have an extra bone sticking off the wrist a long rod-like bone that doesn't seem to have a correlation with things we see in other dinosaurs. We don't see things like that in birds. But in at least the specimen of Yi, there are also patches of membrane preserved around the fossil between the fingers and that long wrist rod, which seems to suggest that there was a membrane that was supported by the long fingers and the long rod coming off the wrist. Yeah. Which is... And that came out not very long ago. This was a mind-blowing discovery, that here is an animal that is basically a bird. These are like sparrow-sized. They're very closely related to birds. They're shaped like birds. But they had... uh, And they had feathers, but also apparently a membranous wing that was supported by multiple long digits and rods on their hand, so they would have looked like a bat wing. (laughs) And why would you have that if not using it for gliding of some kind? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yichi is one of my favorite dinosaurs for this reason. So cool. It's so awesome. The bat-winged dinosaur, as it was dubbed when it was first published. And there's some really cool fan art, uh, like paleo art, of it it's so awesome yeah so these are near bird dinosaurs that evidence seems to suggest were probably gliding which makes me immediately think about you know you said they were very likely arboreal and most gliding vertebrates are arboreal as far as we can tell they're also uh very small yeah and that's a thing i haven't been stressing this but that is another feature of gliders is that they tend to be very small yes because we talked about that with flying, that when you get really big, you get more efficient as a flyer. Yeah, and uh, especially as a soarer. As a soarer. But if you're gliding, you still have to climb up to wherever you, you are going to glide from. Well, and also you have to deal with... Really what you're doing is you're controlling your descent. Yep. You're descending regardless. Yep. And that becomes a lot easier to do if you're really tiny. Yes. <laughs> the physics works for you. And uh, these dinosaurs are, because I, I, the Scansoriaptor rigids, I believe, I read them compared to sp- sparrows and pigeons yeah, in terms of body size. Which makes sense. These are small animals. Uh, but I really would love to know what the ideas are behind how they climbed. Like, mm-hmm. what their body position was while climbing. Like, do they hug the tree with their little 
you know, theropod forearms. Right. Are they like bats, kind of? Yeah. And then they do they use their little back legs and scramble up the tree? Do they hop up the tree, you know, hopping and grabbing? Or do they just one hand over the other climb? Like, mm-hmm. how does a... These aren't raptors, but, you know, how do theropods, how do little bird-shaped dinosaurs, but not with wings, climb a tree? Yeah. That, hmm. Now, how much gliding they did is obviously very hard to tell. Uh, this might have just been parachuting. This might have been gliding. There have been some who have suggested that maybe they were even powering through the air, that Microraptor... Some have argued that we, it should at least be investigated if Microraptor could fly, although jury's out on that one. So how much aerial motion they were doing is debated, but they seem to have been anatomically capable of and adapted for catching the air. So cool. So if you go back to the Jurassic and Cretaceous, there are gliding dinosaurs, there are gliding lizards, there are gliding mammals and near mammals. But we can go back even further. We can go back to the Triassic period. So now we're over 200 million years old. There is a Triassic group, an extinct fossil group, called Thoracopterids, which are an entirely extinct Triassic family of flying fish. (laughs) Unrelated to the modern group of highly adapted flying fish, once again, these are known very well from exceptionally preserved specimens. Uh, These are known from Europe, specifically. Fish in sediment, think like the Green River Formation, where you get the fish, and it's just the body of the fish pressed into the sediment. These fish... We can see from the fossils that they have large, broad pectoral fins, some with large, broad pelvic fins, the biplane-style flying fish, like the modern flying fish do. And another kicker similarity, these fossil, these Triassic flying fish, have an asymmetric tail fin, where the lower lobe of the fin is bigger, which is handy for pushing yourself up out of the water. Yes. Which we see in modern flying fish. Yep. This is, once again, like with the mammals, like with the lizards, this is two different groups of fish separated by a hundred million years, probably, at least, that evolved the same features for doing the same thing. Except that these flying fish were probably jumping out of the water to, like, escape ichthyosaurs. Yeah, yep. I love the long lower lobe of the tail fin because it's like a tail hook on a plane on an aircraft carrier to grab the line except this one is to hit the water and get you back up yeah also in the triassic and this is one of my favorite reasons to talk about the triassic there are a bunch of gliding reptiles yeah these are not quite lizards these the, the triassic reptiles are this mess of early experiments in reptile evolution so a lot of these are maybe cousins of Crocs and dinosaurs may be cousins of lizards and snakes, but they're not quite in any of those groups. So just a smattering of different groups of early reptiles. Most of them are very lizard-like, but they are not truly lizards. Some of them maybe are archosaurs. Regardless, a bunch of different groups of reptiles, at least three of which evolved gliding. And that's not counting whatever pterosaurs were doing in the Triassic. (laughs) This is separate from pterosaurs. The first group are Cuaneosaurids. This is a family that includes several genera of extinct species from late Triassic, both Europe and North America. These would have been lizard-shaped. 
they were adapted for arboreality. So if you just imagine a lizard climbing in a tree, that would have been very similar to what these looked like. But I will stress one more time, not lizards, wholly different group of reptiles. We have really well-preserved specimens. They do not preserve the actual membrane, to my knowledge, but wouldn't you know it, they have extra long ribs. Ah. A set of the ribs in the middle of the body are super long, just like Andraco lizards. Yeah, what is up with, with reptilian ribs and Th- flying through the air? These aren't even lizards. This is a whole <laughs> other group that also did this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so weird. This is another group that has received a bunch of study in aerodynamic studies, wind tunnel studies. These, I know for a fact, there have been physical models made and put in actual wind tunnels to see how they would glide. Uh, There are multiple species of these, and one study that I looked at uh, actually did compare and find differences between uh, the shape that the wing would have been. Okay. So, Cueniosuchus had longer wings, and the authors concluded that they probably were good at true gliding, whereas Cueniosaurus, that's not confusing at all, had shorter wings and probably was more of a parachuter. Makes sense. So there seems to have been variation within the group of how well adapted they were towards gliding. Uh, There also apparently is some evidence of attachments on the hyoid, the throat bones, for potential flaps on the throat, like in modern Draco lizards, to help with stability in the air. Ah, cool. So these are Triassic. This is early, early dinosaurs before pterosaurs really took off, so to speak, (laughs) before mammals really became popular. Things that are gliding just like Draco lizards do today. Also, there is another group of fossil reptiles, late Triassic North America, one genus, Mesistotracolos, apparently a different group from the Cueniosaurids that we just talked about. This is a second group of gliders that had... Extra long ribs. Makes sense at this and point. limb adaptations for climbing. Yeah. Also a long neck, which oh, weird. is weird. Yeah. Yeah. That's that the context that it was brought up in when I, every time I saw it mentioned was also it has a long neck and that's kind of a weird thing for a glider to have. Yeah. Well, now we're, now we are getting to dragon shaped. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's what they were shooting for. And yeah, now you've got that long serpentine European then, dragon head. And then pterosaurs showed up and <laughs> they said, well, I guess we don't have to worry about that anymore. So we've got two different groups of Triassic not-lizard reptiles that did the Draco thing. Awesome. And then there is the third known group of Triassic reptilian gliders, which are my absolute favorites. This is one of my favorite fossil animals of all time. This is a genus named Charovipteryx. I love... This is so cool. Charovipteryx is known from, as far as I know, one fossil, extremely well-preserved, from the Triassic of Kyrgyzstan, it is, again, lizard-shaped, adapted for climbing trees, with relatively short front legs and long back legs. And thank goodness, there is part of the patagium preserved with this specimen in the sediment, just like the others. Uh, And thank goodness, because if we didn't have it, it, we might not have concluded that this was a glider, because the patagium in Charo Victorix is a triangular patagium between the hind legs. Yep. It is a triangular patagium between the hind legs, which is something that has so far been seen in Charovipteryx. Yeah. Apparently, its gliding membrane was between the legs and the tail, controlled with motions of the legs. Now, uh, 
There isn't evidence of potassium further up in the body, but the paper that described them noted that there was some damage to the sediment up there, so they might have had more flaps of skin further up in the body. And indeed, uh, the one study that's been done really analyzing the, the shave, I think this was a 2006 study, did some aerodynamic calculations and concluded that if they only had the potassium between the legs, they probably couldn't fly. Yeah. That that really wouldn't work as a gliding surface because there's so much reptile in front of that. Yeah, you're front heavy and there's no lift to lift that heavy front. Right. So it probably had more skin flaps up front. And they tested out a bunch of different predicted shapes. And they found that the best option, and again, we don't know for sure if this is what they had, but the most aerodynamic option would be that if they have this flap between the legs and then additional flaps from the knees to the armpits, such that when the legs are spread out, it forms a delta wing. Yeah. A triangular, like a hang glider. Yes. Surface across the body. They also pointed out that it probably would have needed to have flaps on the arms or throat to help with stabilization. Mm -hmm. But if it had this or something like this, it would make it an extremely efficient glider. Mm -hmm. Their study concluded that if it had this shape, which again, hypothetical, if it had this shape, it would potentially be more of an efficient glider than Draco lizards today, wow. which are our modern efficient gliders. Because it was a delta wing, which is an excellent shape for something to glide through the air. Yeah. Having teeny tiny front arms helps with that. You're reducing the size of your front. Yeah. They also had a, somewhat of a long neck, which is weird again. Yeah. So Sharovipteryx. And there is another one. There is a genus of reptile called Ozimek from Poland, which seems to also be a Sharovipterigid. Oh. And possibly also a glider similarly. Oh. So this is a an animal that truly, as far as we know, this little family, completely unique style of gliding with a potential delta wing membrane. There will be pictures in the blog post. Charovipteryx is so cool. Yep, I was about to say, Charovipteryx is super weird, and there's tons of paleo art for it. Mm -hmm. And every time I see the paleo art for it, and I'm sure there might be one out there that I'm unaware of, I always kind of wish that someone would do it just crawling around or climbing a tree because mm -hmm. it's always mid-glide that sure. they're usually showing. But I don't know how that thing walks when I see the picture because it's got such tiny front limbs and such long back limbs that like, and you had stuff on your back limbs. Like you had a bunch of skin. Yeah. Did this, would the skin have folded up? Did you, were you able to like run around like a frilled lizard on those long back limbs? I assume that they would have been like a Kalugo. Yeah. And just don't go on the floor. Yeah. Just stay up in the trees where you can climb. But like, how how are you positioned? Like, how are you moving with these yeah. weird proportions? It also raises the question that I've seen discussed of if this is such an efficient gliding mechanism, potentially, why is this the only group that we've seen do this? And one suggestion that has been put forth as an answer to that is that it might be a style of gliding that is just really awkward to get to yep. evolutionarily that you have to start with an ancestor that has really long back legs and short front legs to even have the body shape to do that and like you're pointing out that's a really weird awkward shape to be yeah it could be that charovipteryx was doing something weird that it was living in a way that was unusual or maybe this was just one of those weird early experiments in reptile evolution 
it went off in a weird direction that didn't really work for other stuff, which is why we don't see things like that. But wouldn't you know it, before they went extinct, Natural Selection managed to produce a Delta Wing. Yeah, well, whenever I see something truly bizarre like this in the fossil record that we just don't have today, you know, not my assumption, but one of my first thoughts is always, I wonder if you were very specialized to a particular way of life, like a particular food style, mm-hmm. like the eye-eye, which we mentioned earlier, yep. which has big eyes, buck teeth, and long, thin middle fingers. Yep. And if you just look at that without being able to watch them behave, it's very likely like we would have never come across what that was doing with those body parts yeah, if we just a had a fossil. Very odd body shape. Yeah, and we don't like we have other we have woodpeckers that tap on wood to find insects, bore into the wood, and then pull it out. Sure, but they're using a completely different toolkit. Yeah, and we can compare those two. That eye eyes are also going for grubs under bark because we can watch them both do it. But if we only had the fossil, it might have never occurred to us to put those pieces together. And so I always wonder, were you doing something that almost no other animal on the planet was doing other than you? Were you doing something that only worked in that ecosystem at that time? Exactly. That the types of trees and the types of insects that you were going after or the types of fruits or the blah, 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 all synced up in that environment at that time for Mm -hmm. you to be really good at doing this one thing. It would seem to me that in order to answer that question, it'd be great to have more than one fossil. Oh, yeah. Keep looking. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Also, uh, just to throw it out there, I have seen it suggested that at least one member of a group called Drapanosaurs might have been a glider. Um, Every locomotory mode has been suggested for Drapanosaurs. (laughs) Uh, But there you go. Also, maybe them. So in the Triassic, we have at least three different groups of gliders independently evolved multiple types of gliding. And yet those are not the oldest known gliders. The oldest known gliders in the fossil record for sure are from the Permian. We are back in the Paleozoic. We are more than 250 million years old. This is a single family of reptiles. They all seem to be closely related early reptiles called the Wageltosauridae. These, again, are arboreal, lizard-shaped, and they have Draco wings, but they are not formed from the ribs. Oh? It is the same basic idea as Draco, with the long ribs sticking out to the side that support a membrane. They have the same thing, but they are supported by a set of special extra bones. Ooh. These are extra, kind of like the wrist rod that we described in the Scansoriopter rigids. These are additional, a, a line of additional bones that stick off the side of the body, separate from the ribs. These are bones in the skin. They developed from dermal bone. Yeah. Specialized bones just for this, to support this gliding membrane. Awesome. There are at least three genera known from the late Permian of Europe, Asia, and Madagascar, so they were somewhat widespread. Again, excellently preserved skeletons, curved claws, long limbs, compressed bodies, arboreal features, with these big rods coming out the side, doing the same thing that Draco lizards do. Originally, it was thought that the rods attached to the ribs, that they were extensions off the ribs. But there was a recent study, recent like this month. Wow. This was on our news list. It <laughs> just came out. A study that, that re-looked at some of these fossils and suggests that the rods actually might be sticking off of the gastralia. Oh. The belly ribs. 
which means that they sit lower on the side of the body than in Draco and the other animals that have uh, true ribs supporting their wings. Yeah. And another thing that that study concluded is that it found that one of the shared features among the members of this Permian group of gliding reptiles, the Wegeltosaurids, is that the fifth finger in the hand, the last finger, the, right, the outermost finger in the front feet, the hands, are pinky. A pinky has an extra bone in it. Oh. So like our fingers, right, your pinky has three bones in it. Yes. So two joints beyond the, the main knuckle. These each had one extra joint, one extra bone in that last digit, which the authors suggest might have helped them to grab the wing like Draco lizards do and use their arms to help control the movement of the wing. It's a a latching system. (laughs) Yeah. That's super cool. That also would make for very good Dr. Evil. Absolutely. Pinky. Like, that'd be excellent. (laughs) This means we, at the beginning of this discussion, we geeked out over how Draco lizards are super unique and super cool by having this extra wing appendage separate from the arms and legs. And it turns out that there has basically always been a group of reptiles doing that for the last 260 or so million years so really draco lizards aren't that cool i was mistaken comparing them to the level of batman they're fine bring me a delta wing yeah they're fine they're okay gliding has been a thing apparently amniotes have glided for as long as there have been amniotes yeah and fish have glided since at least the start of the mesozoic who knows if there were earlier gliding fish surely there were earlier gliding insects yes Gliding seems at first glance like just this super rare, weird niche activity that that organisms do. And yet it is super common today and has been super common for about as long as terrestrial ecosystems have existed. Well, and there's a bunch of things, uh, gliders that are not likely to preserve well, like gliding squid. Yeah. If there were previous gliding squid species cephalopods do not fossilize well because they are extremely soft-bodied. So we could have had a long history of them as well, but we just don't have those fossils to show. You know, we have like maybe the beak, but it didn't preserve well enough to give us their wing head. So we're not sure. And fish have been around for twice as long as the ones that I described here. Mm -hmm. From the Triassic, they could easily have been gliding apparently gliding is a thing that evolution just loves to hit upon over and over again. Yeah. Now, before we finish up this discussion, there are a bunch of interesting trends in the evolution of gliding that have received some attention from researchers. Uh, the, f- the first one to discuss is what we started getting at earlier is how does this start? Mm-hmm. How does gliding evolve? We talk, We did a whole episode, episode six, about how does flight evolve? Yeah. The question of how does gliding evolve seems way simpler. Yep. Because, as you were pointing out earlier, uh, the general thought, one of the most common hypotheses is that gliding probably starts out as falling. Yeah. It has been pointed out by a number of researchers. Also, it was pointed out by Will, <laughs> uh, the first part of this episode. That a lot of animals, when they fall, assume a posture. 
they write themselves in the air, and then they spread their limbs out because that helps slow a descent. Even if you don't have a membrane or anything, that's the the most efficient way to fall as slow as possible. Yeah, it's the skydiver posture. Yes. And it, it's when, why in an action movie where they jump out of a plane and the good guy and bad guy are still fighting each other in the air, and then one of them will fold their limbs up to catch up. Yes. Because that is a worse way to fall. You're going to fall faster that way. And then you put your arms and legs out and you're going to slow down. Yes. You're still going to die. Sure, sure. Because <laughs> you're, you're not slowing you're down that much. Thousands of feet in the air. <laughs> yeah, and, and you're very heavy compared to a squirrel. So you're going to die, but you're still slowing your descent. And if it's a small animal, that's a real help. That can slow just enough to actually survive that fall. In the case of things like fish and frogs, we talked about how they often already have those body parts. In the case of climbing animals, not only is having an ad- adaptation to reduce falling speed already useful, one paper that I read pointed out that lots of animals already have a jump response to threats. Yeah. That when something threatening shows up, they jump. Yes. As a way of getting away or startling or at least you know moving from where you are. And a built-in jump response and a built-in falling posture might be all you need to get started in gliding in habitats where you live up high. Well, and I love the jump response because that also applies to fish. Yes, that's true. Lots of fish leap out of the water. They don't glide at all. You know, like carp don't glide at all. But if they get spooked, they will leap out of the water to try to avoid whatever's in the water. So take to the air is already a common threat response in a lot of animals. It's what your cat does when you surprise. They jump. Absolutely. (laughs) So all over the world, scared animals are already in the air. (laughs) It's a jump scare. Yes. (laughs) We also pointed out that gliding is something that shows up over and over and over again in tree-dwelling species, which, again, makes total sense. And one of the papers that I read that was specifically looking at this, uh, which I will link in the blog post if it's open access, I don't remember, the authors suggested that experiments with gliding or controlled descent might just be inevitable Mm -hmm. in forests. Yeah. If you're climbing, that falling is a thing that is going to happen. That is a selective pressure you cannot escape from. Gliding and parachuting is one of the solutions to that pressure. Absolutely. There is also this really interesting trend in the modern world, and some of you may have caught on to it at the the first half of the episode discussion when I was listing the modern animals we have. A huge diversity of our modern gliding vertebrates on land live in Southeast Asia. There are far fewer in other parts of the world. For example, in South America, gliding is extremely uncommon. Yeah. Like one, the one paper I was reading about this said there are no gliding vertebrates in South America. Now, there are frogs, which at least parachute. So that might be the distinction they were yes. making. Yeah. But at the very least, specialized gliders are exceptionally common in this one region of the world. And this has been a question that people have asked, why is that the case? And the obvious sort of answer to look for is that it might have to do with the forests. There have been a couple of suggestions. Some have pointed out that South American forests tend to be much denser and more overgrown. And in particular, there's a lot more lianas, vines that take up the airspace. Mm -hmm. So some have said maybe that, maybe there's just not as much airspace for traveling. Although this has been 
a contentious hypothesis. A 2012 study that I found estimated, looked at a bunch of gliding vertebrates in Southeast Asia and estimated their divergence time. So once again, genetic studies estimating when did this group of gliders first show up and found that the origins of many of the gliding groups line up in time with the time that Asian tropical forests became host to lots of trees in the dipterocarp group. Dipterocarps are common rainforest trees in this part of the world. They are very diverse in Asia, and they are many meters taller than other canopy trees. Oh. They also, the authors point out, have unpalatable leaves and particular fruiting schedules that might get in the way of arboreal animals getting hold of food. So they point out that it could be that some combination of patchier food resources, which means you have to travel around more to get food, and much taller trees might just lend more selective pressure for animals to evolve the habit of gliding between the trees. Interesting. So the kinds of trees there are might impact how commonly gliding evolves in a particular ecosystem. Yeah. I... I, I find myself wondering what <laughs> one of those those mad scientists type uh <laughs> thoughts you know biologist thoughts of is there something innate about the south american rainforests that is less conducive to gliding or is there just some reason that the group of life down there has not has not come across or found the need for Mm-hmm. gliding you know that they have they can survive in other ways that are and i did see that. i did see one reference that pointed out that in south america it is very especially common for arboreal animals to have prehensile limbs yeah and less common in asia where it's more common for them to be gliding yeah so like maybe you're just better at holding on mm-hmm. which is another adaptation to combat falling out of trees yes if i have a safety line that is connected to my butt now, that same uh, reference also made the point that in Australia, uh, you have both. Yes. Most Austra- most marsupial gliders also have prehensile tails. <laughs> uh, but the thought that popped in my mind is, what if you took one of the gliders and put them in the South America? How well would they do? Yeah. Would they not do well? And therefore, something about the forest is likely not conducive to them. Mm-hmm. Or would they do perfectly fine? So there might be some other reason gliding didn't evolve yeah which is where the mad scientist thinking comes in because right. that's get another earth yeah <laughs> yep. and we'll start mixing species around you just I, described I, one of my childhood like <laughs> favorite brain puzzles to do when i got bored it's just how would i shuffle earth if i could i'm sure that if we haven't already we will eventually accidentally introduce a species <laughs> whoops whoops uh, also that 2022 this month study that i pointed out that i mentioned about the permian gliding reptiles also uh, postulated that it might be that that is where we see the earliest gliders, because from the Pennsylvanian to the Permian period, we see a shift in forest structure, a shift to denser forests mm-hmm. with more continuous canopy. Yeah. Which, unsurprisingly, altogether suggests that one of the number one controls on the diversity of gliding on land on Earth is plants. Yes, not only plants and their own seeds that glide, but also the animals that live in them. 
yeah, no one glides in the in a in a grassland or in a desert because you don't need to. Yep, and you the, wouldn't be able to. <laughs> the distribution and type of forest that there is controls the diversity of gliders. Yep, which is super cool. Well, it's it's uh, a glider in the desert is like that uh, meme of spider-man in the countryside yes <laughs> just if you have nowhere nothing to swing off of if you have no trees to fall out of or to climb to glide from you can't get that initial velocity yeah you don't have the potential energy of being high up to fall from and get that speed which means <laughs> vertebrate gliding on land at least terrestrial gliding can't happen without trees and not to say that there are tons of terrestrial vertebrates before trees were established right. but that is also a point you also couldn't have had, like, the earliest land vertebrates likely wouldn't have been able to glide effectively because that forests were not... There's nowhere to glide from. Yes! That's so cool! <laughs> Only the fish are uninhibited. <laughs> now, there is one more point about gliding and evolution that I want to touch on, and that is the, re- the evolutionary relationship between gliding and flying. Yeah. As we've said a couple times, flight evolved... Four times. And each time, as we've pointed out before, flying groups exploded. Mm -hmm. Every time flight evolves, it seems to then give rise to an enormous radiation of diversity of species. Gliding does not seem to do that. And yet gliding is also way more common than flying, which on the surface makes total sense. Flight is something altogether different. Gliding is great, but flight is you can go wherever you want. And that is an enormous upgrade over gliding. That, that's what I was going to say. Uh, like gliding is like a, a power up. Uh, it's useful and it's awesome. Flight is a superpower. Yes. Like you, you have a new <laughs> superpower. You are a superhero among insects. And unless you're an insect and then you're yes. just insects. You are a god among insects. <laughs> now gliding also, uh, despite being clearly distinct from flying, is very commonly brought up in discussions of the evolution of flight. We talked about this in episode 6. We talked about this in episode 37 and in episode 99. Whenever we're trying to answer the question of how did a group evolve flight, gliding is often proposed as a step in between. But, interestingly enough, rarely definitively shown. Yes. There is no group of life that has evolved flying that we can definitively say, yes, they glided first or that gliding is what got it started. It's very tempting, especially since we have bats and then we have a bunch of gliding in small mammals. We have a bunch of early reptiles that glided around the time that early pterosaurs would have been showing up. We have a bunch of potential gliders around the origins of birds. We have a but we have insects like the bristletails that are an early branch of wingless insects that show that controlled descent. But it's very hard to say for sure because we have very little evidence of the early stages of three of those groups. And the other one is just a big chaotic mess. Yep. But also because gliding is common everywhere. Yes. It's very tempting to go, well, there's a bunch of gliding small mammals. So maybe bats came from gliders, which is a totally reasonable hypothesis But also there's a bunch of gliders everywhere, which really drives home the point that as as intuitive as it sounds otherwise, gliding is not an inevitable precursor to flight. Yeah, 
it is so common that we will we, you'll hear a documentary or news or just a, people talking about stuff and they'll point at a gliding animal and say, I wonder when they'll evolve to fly. Yes, exactly. That right? Gl- flying fish. When will they actually evolve to fly? Flying snakes. Are they going to evolve flight? And not only do we not know for sure that gliding between the trees or gliding over the waves is the important step before true flight, but there's tons of gliders that don't evolve flight Mm-mm. for all the reasons we talked about before. Probably flight is just really, really specific and hard to do. Gliding is its own separate thing among life on earth that has its own diverse, super cool history. Well, it's, it, it is, I think it is a very easy point of view that both of these things are ways to move through the air in a direction. And that's true. And they're very similar in that way that you're having to use airfoils and aerodynamics to control your movement through the air. And even the shape and some of the adaptations are quite similar. Yes. But that doesn't mean that flight and gliding are actually that similar of behaviors. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the biggest things that stands out to me about the difference between gliders and flyers, especially among vertebrates is that gliders take all sorts of weird shapes. You have ones that have stretches of skin, ones that use just their hands and their feet, ones that use their whole body, Mm -hmm. all sorts of weird shapes. Every single group of vertebrate flyers uses their front limbs, and that's it. Yes. They use their front arms to to flap. And that is how every group of flying vertebrate that we know of on this planet has developed flight. Which means that a lot, most of those gliding body shapes are actually ill-suited to evolve that kind of flight. Because mm-hmm. you've messed up your ideal limbs or your ideal shape to start flapping your front limbs. So while it, it sure does seem like, wow, flying squirrels are so good at this, surely they'll just take off and start going up. And they'll start being bats. But no, they're not shaped like a bat. They're not shaped like a bat at all. They don't have the musculature for that. They don't have the proportions for that. Yeah, gliding and flying are surprisingly two very different things. So it's, it would be kind of like looking at uh, a paraglider, you know, like the, the parachutes you can glide around with and being like, man, what, what could I do to that to make it fly? Right. So, yeah, but if you put an engine on that, it's not going to work. Nope. Because the floppy piece of fabric, it's great at falling in a direction. But if you put jets on your back, you're just going to go in circles. Yes. <laughs> you're going to flip around. <laughs> if you put something on the parachute, it's going to crumple. It is only meant to glide. Yes. Gliding is an absolutely fascinating topic. Uh, listeners, we have just breezed by all these different examples. Many of the groups that we talked about in this episode could be their own episodes. Hint, hint. If you'd like to hear more about any of them in particular, go ahead and let us know. But we are going to wrap up this discussion of gliders for this episode. This has been super fun. What oh. a super cool topic. What a super cool bunch of animals. It's so much fun. Before we officially finish up the episode, we have one last thing to talk about that we, uh, we're going to talk a little bit extra about gliding. <laughs> and that is our patron question. One of the benefits that our Patreon supporters can get at a certain level is the ability to submit questions for us to answer right here on the podcast Will, what's our patron question? Our question is from Sam, who asks, can you touch on the notion that theropods, the two-legged predatory, mostly predatory dinosaurs, evolved flight more than once? 
Excellent question, Sam, and very appropriate for this episode. So like you said, theropods are the group of dinosaurs that includes birds, but also dromaeosaurs and tyrannosaurs and allosaurs and all those. Birds evolved flight, but like I mentioned earlier, there are a bunch of these dinosaurs closely related to birds that have a very bird-like shape and have feathery wings, some of which are interpreted to have some ability to parachute or glide. Some have suggested that perhaps there were other groups that weren't quite birds that evolved true powered flight. Uh, If true, that would be super cool because it would mean the thing we keep saying about how there's only four times that flight ever evolved would be not true. Yes. That there would have been multiple or near, you know, very closely related animals. It still would be dinosaurs. Yeah, and, and still the near bird lineage of dinosaurs. Yes, but it would be multiple lineages. Yes, technically. Yes. Uh, Now, we don't know that for certain. And in fact, as of right now, it is most logical, most consistent with the evidence to say that no, flight seems to have evolved one time and it was birds and then birds took over the skies. But there have been certain other theropods that have been pointed at as potential exceptions. There was a study in 2020 that looked at data for a whole bunch of near-bird dinosaurs, looked at wing shape and body size and their proportions, and basically to do some of these aerodynamic assessments that we've been talking about throughout this episode to estimate, all right, well, how much of the requirements for flight could each of these animals actually hit? Yeah. And found a bunch that possibly could have produced some lift with their wings, maybe for parachuting, maybe for controlling a jump or something. And in their analysis, they found that the potential for powered flight, that the right shape and things that could allow for powered flight, seems to show up in early birds. But also, their study estimated a very similar potential in Microraptor and another near-bird group, uh, genus Rahonavis. Okay. So their analysis says those two, which are not birds and not sisters, right there, those are two different lineages, had a body shape and wing shape and everything that possibly could have flown. Yeah, have all the right stuff. Now, whether or not they did, uh, we don't know. Yeah. That's very hard to say. Odds are that, and in fact, we already know this is true, that around that bird section of the theropod family tree, there were tons of experiments with the bird body shape. Yes. Jumpers and runners and climbers and slow fallers and maybe even gliders. If there were a couple other lineages that actually did do some flapping and pushing themselves through the air, that really wouldn't be very surprising. No, I've always kind of pictured that there were almost certainly non-bird dinosaurs that might be doing the kind of like chicken flap Mm -hmm. where it's like... And I, I don't actually know, because I've heard some people say, well, no, chickens actually can, or they can't, but they can jump and flap to extend that jump right. upwards. So they're creating force. They're creating thrust with the wings yep. to extend a jump and get surprisingly high. And I know there's tons of ground-dwelling birds that do that, that yeah. don't really flap through the air, but flap through a jump. Yes. And, and that's like, been suggested for a bunch of small near-bird dinosaurs. And where do you draw the line between that and flying? Like, yes. Is that just a really short flight? Because all flight with birds starts with a jump, pretty mm-hmm. much. 
and then it's flapping and then you keep flapping. Maybe these are only flying for from here to that branch. Yes. So yeah, it absolutely, I would assume that you would see lots of tiny dinosaurs that you would probably be like, that looked like flying to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like that sure did seem like flying when it went (laughs) from that tree to that tree. Because as we've discussed a bunch of times, the evolution of a certain cool lineage or feature is never a straight line. Mm-mm. Birds emerged from a whole pool of flappy, feathery, small dinosaurs. So to answer Sam's question, we do not have definite evidence that there were multiple origins of true powered bird-like flight among theropods, near bird theropods. But it is very reasonable to say that there were just a whole bunch of different flight-adjacent behaviors that evolved many times in that branch, that whole section of the dinosaur family tree, even if birds are the only group that really then pulled it off, took to the skies as flyers. Yeah. Thank you for that question, Sam. An excellent little end cap for this episode's discussion. Thank you to all of our patrons for their support. Their support helps us to do all of this cool science education stuff that we like and that you presumably like since you're still here at the end of this episode. (laughs) Thank you to our requesters for this episode. Thank you to the requesters for all of our episodes. And thanks to you who's sitting there right now thinking about submitting another request, perhaps about things we only touched on in this episode. If you have requests, you can send them to us by all the normal ways. Check the episode description for links to our social media, our Discord, stuff like that. As always, there will be a blog post for episode 148 with extra links, all sorts of cool pictures for those of you that want to learn more about this stuff or to visualize some of the things we've been talking about. Like I said, I'll also have links to videos because there's a bunch of cool video footage for these. Don't forget that next month in October, we have Spooky coming up where we will be speculatively evolving a bunch of monsters from Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. Check the episode description for ways to support us, and also that link we mentioned at the top of the episode for Mouse's Donors Choose page to support their educational efforts. We release episodes every fortnight. Our episode releases are as predictable and consistent as gliding animals (laughs) over the last 300 million years on Earth. Apparently. <laughs> that means we've been falling with style for a while. <laughs> Just falling upwards. That's that's the way I like to think about it. <laughs> Stay tuned. New episode coming out soon. Thank you all for falling with us. For gla- Just coasting, I think. Yeah. We've just yeah. been coasting nope. along. Yeah. It's taking a long time to hit the ground. <laughs> uh, thank you all of those of you who support us. I get it. Yeah. You lift us up. You keep us aloft. <laughs> you keep this thing moving. You add lift and reduce drag on our continuing journey through science education. I think I've extended the analogy long enough. <laughs> Join us next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.